This is Audible. Penguin Audio presents Proven Guilty by Jim Butcher. Read by James Marsters. Chapter 1 Blood leaves no stain on a warden's gray cloak. I didn't know that until the day I watched Morgan, second in command of the White Council's wardens, lift his sword over the kneeling form of a young man guilty of the practice of black magic. The boy, sixteen years old at the most, screamed and ranted in Korean underneath his black hood, his mouth spilling hatred and rage, convinced by his youth and power of his own immortality. He never knew it when the blade came down. Which, I guess, was a small mercy. Microscopic, really. His blood flew in a scarlet arc. I wasn't ten feet away. I felt hot droplets strike one cheek, and more blood covered the left side of the cloak in blotches of angry red. The head fell to the ground, and I saw the cloth over it moving, as if the boy's mouth were still screaming imprecations. The body fell onto its side. One calf muscle twitched spasmodically and then stopped. After maybe five seconds, the head did too. Morgan stood over the still form for a moment, the bright silver sword of the White Council of Wizards' justice in his hands. Besides him and me, there were a dozen wardens present, and two members of the senior council, the Merlin and my one-time mentor, Ebenezer McCoy. The covered head stopped its feeble movements. Morgan glanced up at the Merlin and nodded once. The Merlin returned the nod. May he find peace. Peace, the wardens all replied together. Except me. I turned my back on them and made it two steps away before I threw up on the warehouse floor. I stood there shaking for a moment until I was sure I was finished, then straightened slowly. I felt a presence draw near me and looked up to see Ebenezer standing there. He was an old man, bald but for wisps of white hair, short, stocky, his face half-covered in a ferocious-looking gray beard. His nose and cheeks and bald scalp were all ruddy, except for a recent purplish scar on his pate. Though he was centuries old, he carried himself with a vibrant energy, and his eyes were alert and pensive behind gold-rimmed spectacles. He wore the formal black robes of a meeting of the council, along with the deep purple stole of a member of the senior council. Harry, he said quietly, you all right? After that, I snarled, loudly enough to make sure everyone there heard me. No one in this damn building should be all right. I felt a sudden tension in the air behind me. No, they shouldn't, Ebenezer said. I saw him look back at the other wizards there, his jaw setting stubbornly. The Merlin came over to us, also in his formal robes and stole. He looked like a wizard should look, tall, long white hair, long white beard, piercing blue eyes. His face seamed with age and wisdom. Well, with age, anyway. Warden Dresden, he said. He had the sonorous voice of a trained speaker and spoke English with a high-class British accent. If you had some evidence that you felt would prove the boy's innocence, you should have presented it during the trial. I didn't have anything like that, and you know it, I replied. He was proven guilty, the Merlin said. 
I soul-gazed him myself. I examined more than two dozen mortals whose minds he had altered. Three of them might eventually recover their sanity. He forced four others to commit suicide and had hidden nine corpses from the local authorities as well, and every one of them was a blood relation. The Merlin stepped toward me, and the air in the room suddenly felt hot. His eyes flashed with azure anger, and his voice rumbled with deep, unyielding power. The powers he had used had already broken his mind. We did what was necessary. I turned and faced the Merlin. I didn't push out my jaw and try to stare him down. I didn't put anything belligerent or challenging into my posture. I didn't show any anger on my face or slur any disrespect into my tone when I spoke. The past several months had taught me that the Merlin hadn't gotten his job through an ad on a matchbook. He was, quite simply, the strongest wizard on the planet. And he had talent, skill, and experience to go along with that strength. If I ever came to magical blows with him, there wouldn't be enough left of me to fill a lunch sack. I did not want to fight. But I didn't back down, either. He was a kid, I said. We all have been. He made a mistake. We've all done that, too. The Merlin regarded me with an expression somewhere between irritation and contempt. You know what the use of black magic can do to a person, he said. Marvelously subtle shading and emphasis over his words added in a perfectly clear, unspoken thought. You know it because you've done it. Sooner or later, you'll slip up, and then it will be your turn. One use leads to another, and another. That's what I keep hearing, Merlin, I answered. Just say no to black magic, but that boy had no one to tell him the rules, to teach him. If someone had known about his gift and done something in time, he lifted a hand and the simple gesture had such absolute authority to it that I stopped to let him speak. The point you are missing, Warden Dresden, he said, is that the boy who made that foolish mistake died long before we discovered the damage he'd done. What was left of him was nothing more or less than a monster who would have spent his life inflicting horror and death on anyone near him. I know that. I said, and I couldn't keep the anger and frustration out of my voice. And I know what had to be done. I know it was the only measure that could stop him. I thought I was going to throw up again, and I closed my eyes and leaned on the solid oak length of my carved staff. I got my stomach under control and opened my eyes to face the Merlin. But it doesn't change the fact that we've just murdered a boy who probably never knew enough to understand what was happening to him. Accusing someone else of murder is hardly a stone you are in a position to cast, Warden Dresden. The Merlin arched a silver brow at me. Did you not discharge a firearm into the back of the head of a woman you merely believed to be the corpse-taker from a distance of a few feet away, fatally wounding her? I swallowed. I sure as hell had last year. It had been one of the bigger coin tosses of my life. Had I incorrectly judged that a body-transferring wizard, known as the corpse-taker, had jumped into the original body of Warden Lucio, I would have murdered an innocent woman and a law-enforcing member of the White Council. I hadn't been wrong, but I'd never, never just 
killed anyone before. I've killed things in the heat of battle, yes. I've killed people by less direct means. But Corpse Taker's death had been intimate and coldly calculated and not at all indirect. Just me, the gun, and the limp corpse. I could still vividly remember the decision to shoot, the feel of the cold metal in my hands, the stiff pull of my revolver's trigger, the thunder of the gun's report, and the way the body had settled into a limp bundle of limbs on the ground. The emotion somehow too simple for the horrible significance of the event. I'd killed. Deliberately, rationally ended another's life, and it still haunted my dreams at night. I'd had little choice. Given the smallest amount of time, the corpse-taker could have called up lethal magic, and the best I could have hoped for was a death curse that killed me as I struck down the necromancer. It had been a bad day or two, and I was pretty strung out. Even if I hadn't been, I had a feeling that corpse-taker could have taken me in a fair fight. So I hadn't given corpse-taker anything like a fair fight. I shot the necromancer in the back of the head because the corpse-taker had to be stopped and I'd had no other option. I had executed her on suspicion. No trial, no soul gaze, no judgment from a dispassionate arbiter. Hell, I hadn't even taken the chance to get in a good insult. Bang, thump, one live wizard, one dead bad guy. I'd done it to prevent future harm to myself and others. It hadn't been the best solution, but it had been the only solution. I hadn't hesitated for a heartbeat. I'd done it, no questions, and gone on to face the further perils of that night. Just like a warden is supposed to do. Sort of took the wind out of my holier-than-thou sails. Bottomless, blue eyes watched my face, and he nodded slowly. You executed her, the Merlin said quietly, because it was necessary. That was different, I said. Indeed. Your action required far deeper commitment. It was dark, cold, and you were alone. The suspect was a great deal stronger than you. Had you struck and missed, you would have died. Yet you did what had to be done. Necessary isn't the same as right, I said. Perhaps not, he said. But the laws of magic are all that prevent wizards from abusing their power over mortals. There is no room for compromise. You are a warden now, Dresden. You must focus on your duty to both mortals and the council, which sometimes means killing children. This time I didn't hide the contempt, but there wasn't much life to it. Which means always enforcing the laws the Merlin said, and his eyes bored into mine, flickering with sparks of rigid anger. It is your duty, now more than ever. I broke the stair first, looking away before anything bad could happen. Ebenezer stood a couple of steps from me, studying my expression. Granted that you've seen much for a man your age, the Merlin said, and there was a slight softening in his tone. But you haven't seen how horrible such things can become. Not nearly. The laws exist for a reason. They must stand as written. I turned my head, 
and stared at the small pool of scarlet on the warehouse floor beside the kid's corpse. I hadn't been told his name before they ended his life. Right, I said tiredly, and wiped a clean corner of the gray cloak over my blood-sprinkled face. I can see what they're written in. Chapter 2 I turned my back on them and walked out of the warehouse into Chicago's best impression of Miami. July in the Midwest is rarely less than sultry, but this year had been especially intense when it came to summer heat, and it had rained frequently. The warehouse was a part of the wharves down at the lakeside, and even the chill waters of Lake Michigan were warmer than usual. They filled the air with more than the average water scent of mud and mildew and oh to dead fishy. I passed the two gray-cloaked wardens standing watch outside and exchanged nods with them. Both of them were younger than me, some of the most recent additions to the White Council's military-slash-police organization. As I passed them, I felt the tingling presence of a veil, a spell they were maintaining to conceal the warehouse from any prying eyes. It wasn't much of a veil, by warden standards, but it was probably better than I could do, and there weren't a whole hell of a lot of wardens to choose from since the Red Court's successful offensive the previous autumn. Beggars can't be choosers. I tugged off my robe and my cloak. I was wearing sneakers, khaki shorts, and a red tank top underneath. It didn't make me any cooler to remove the heavy clothes, just marginally less miserable. I walked hurriedly back to my car, a battered old Volkswagen Beetle, its windows rolled down to keep the sun from turning the interior into an oven. It's a jumble of different colors, as my mechanic has replaced damaged portions of the body with parts from junk bugs, but it started off as a shade of powder blue, and that had earned it the sobriquet of the Blue Beetle. I heard quick, solid footsteps behind me. Harry, Ebenezer called. I threw the robe and cloak into the beetle's back seat without a word. The car's interior had been stripped to its metal bones a couple of years back, and I had made hurried repairs with cheap lumber and a lot of duct tape. Since then, I'd had a friend redo the inside of the car. It wasn't standard, and it still didn't look pretty, but the comfortable bucket seats were a lot nicer than the wooden crates I'd been using, and I had decent seat belts again. Harry, Ebenezer said again, Damnation, boy, stop! I thought about getting into the car and leaving, but instead stopped, until the old wizard approached and shucked off his own formal robes and stole. He wore a white t-shirt beneath denim Levi's overalls and heavy leather hiking boots. There's something I need to speak to you about. I paused and took a second to get some of my emotions under control. Those and my stomach. I didn't want the embarrassment of a repeat performance. What is it? He stopped a few feet behind me. The war isn't going well. By which he meant the war of the White Council against the Red Court of Vampires. The war had been a whole lot of pussyfooting and fights in back alleys for several years, but last year the vampires had upped the ante. Their assault had been timed to coincide with vicious activity from a traitor within the Council and with the attack of a number of necromancers, outlaw wizards, who raised the dead into angry specters and zombies, among a number of other less savory things. The vampires had hit the council. Hard. Before the battle was over, they'd killed nearly two hundred wizards, most of them wardens. 
That's why the wardens had given me a gray cloak. They needed the help. Before they'd finished, the vampires killed nearly 45,000 men, women, and children who happened to be nearby. That's why I'd taken the cloak. That wasn't the sort of thing I could ignore. I've read the reports, I said. They say that the Venatorium Brorum and the Fellowship of St. Giles have really pitched in. Is more than that. If they hadn't started up an offensive to slow the vamps down, the Red Court would have destroyed the Council months ago. I blinked. They're doing that much? The Venatori Umbrorum and the Fellowship of St. Giles were the White Council's primary allies in the war with the Red Court. The Venatori were an ancient secret brotherhood joined together to fight supernatural darkness wherever they could, sort of like the Masons, only with more flamethrowers. By and large, they were academic sorts, and though several of the Venatori had various forms of military experience, their true strength lay in utilizing human legal systems and analyzing information brought together from widely dispersed sources. The Fellowship, though, was a somewhat different story. Not as many of them as there were of the Venatori, but not many of them were merely human. Most of them, so I took it, were those who had been half-turned by the vampires. They'd been infested with the dark powers that made the Red Court such a threat, but until they willingly drank another's lifeblood, they never quite stopped being human. It could make them stronger and faster and better able to withstand injury than regular folks, and it granted them a drastically increased lifespan. Assuming they didn't fall prey to their constant base desire for blood or weren't slain in operations against their enemies in the Red Court. A woman I'd once cared for very much had been taken by a Red Court vampire. In point of fact, I'd kicked off the war when I went and took her back by the most violent means at my disposal. I brought her back, but I didn't save her. She'd been touched by that darkness and now her life was a battle, partly against the vampires who'd done it to her, and partly against the bloodthirst they'd imposed upon her. Now she was a part of the fellowship whose members included those like her, and, I'd heard, many other people, and part people, with no home anywhere else. St. Giles, patron of lepers and outcasts. His fellowship, while not a full-blown powerhouse like the council, or one of the vampire courts, was nonetheless proving to be a surprisingly formidable ally. Our allies can't challenge the vampires in face-to-face -face confrontations, Ebenezer said, nodding. But they're wreaking havoc on the Red Court's supply chains, intelligence, and support, attacking from the mortal end of things. Red Court infiltrators within human society are unmasked. Humans controlled by the Red Court have been arrested, framed, or killed or else abducted to be forcibly freed of their addiction. The Fellowship and the Venatori continue to do all in their power to provide information to the Council, which has enabled us to make a number of successful raids against the vampires. The Venatori and the Fellowship haven't appreciably weakened the vampires, but the Red Court has been slowed down, perhaps enough to give us a fighting chance to recover. How's the boot camp coming? I asked. Lucho is confident of her eventual success in replacing our losses, Ebenezer replied. Don't see what else I can do to help, I said, unless you're wanting someone to go start fathering new wizards. He stepped closer to me and glanced around. His expression was casual, 
but he was checking to see if anyone was close enough to overhear. There's something you don't know. The Merlin decided it was not for general knowledge. I turned to face him and tilted my head. You remember the Red Court's attack last year, he said. That they called up outsiders and assaulted us within the realm of fairy itself. Bad move, so I've heard. The fairies are going to take it out of their hides. So we all thought, the old man said. In fact, Summer declared war upon the Red Court and began preliminary assaults on them. But Winter hasn't responded, and Summer hasn't done much more than secure its borders. Queen Mab didn't declare war? No. I frowned. Never thought she'd pass up the chance. She's all about carnage and bloodshed. It surprised us as well, he said. So I want to ask a favor of you. I eyed him without speaking. Find out why, he said. You have contacts within the courts. Find out what's happening. Find out why the she haven't gone to war. What? I asked. The senior council doesn't know? Don't you have an embassy and high-level connections and official channels? Maybe a bright red telephone? Ebenezer smiled without much mirth. The general turbulence of the war has stretched everyone's intelligence-gathering abilities, he replied, even those in the spiritual realms. There's another level entirely to the war in the conflict between spiritual spies and emissaries of everyone involved, and our embassy to the Shi has been... He rolled a weathered, strong shoulder in a shrug. Well, you know them as well as anyone. They've been polite, open, spoken with complete honesty, and left you with no idea what's going on, I guessed. Precisely. So, the senior council is asking me to find out? He glanced around again. Not the senior council. Myself. A few others. What others? I asked. People I trust, he said, and looked at me directly over the rims of his spectacles. I stared at him for a second, and then said in a whisper, The traitor. The vampires of the Red Court had been a little too on top of the game to be merely lucky. Somehow, they had been obtaining vital secrets about the dispositions of the White Council's forces and their plans. Someone on the inside had been feeding the vampires information, and a lot of wizards had died because of it. Particularly during their heaviest attack last year, in which they violated Chi territory in pursuit of the fleeing council. You think the traitor is someone on the senior council. I think we can't take any chances, he said quietly. This isn't official business. I can't order you to do it, Harry. I'll understand if you don't want to, but there's no one better for the job, and our allies cannot maintain the current pace of operations for long. Their best weapon has always been secrecy, and their actions have forced them to pay a terrible cost of lives to give us what aid they have. I folded my arms over my stomach and said, We need to help them, sure. But every time I look sideways at Ferry, I get into deeper trouble with them. It's the last thing I need. If I do this, how... Ebenezer's weight shifted, gravel crunching loudly. I glanced up to see the Merlin and Morgan emerge from the building, speaking quietly and intently. I wanted to talk to you, Ebenezer said, evidently for the benefit of everyone listening. 
Make sure Morgan and the other wardens are treating you square. I went along with him. When they talk to me at all, I said, about the only other warden I ever see is Ramirez. Decent guy. I like him. That says a lot for him. That the council's ticking time bomb has a good opinion of him? I waited for Morgan and the Merlin to leave, but they paused a little way off still talking. I stared at the gravel for a long time, and then said, much more quietly, That could have been me in there today. I could have been that kid. It was a long time ago, Ebenezer said. You were barely more than a child. So was he. Ebenezer's expression became guarded. I'm sorry you had to see that business. Is that why it happened here? I asked him. Why come to Chicago for an execution? He exhaled slowly. <sighs> it's one of the great crossroads of the world, Harry. More air traffic comes through here than anywhere else. It's an enormous port city for shipping of any kind, trucks, trains, ships. That means a lot of ways in and out, a lot of travelers passing through. It makes it difficult for any observers from the Red Court to spot us or report our movements. He gave me a bleak smile. And in as a way, Chicago seems to be inimical to the health of any vampire who comes here. That's a pretty good cover story, I said. What's the truth? Ebenezer sighed and held up his hand in a conciliatory gesture. It wasn't my idea. I looked at him for a minute and then said, The Merlin called the meeting here. Ebenezer nodded and arched a shaggy gray brow. Which means... I chewed on my lower lip and scrunched up my eyes. It never helped me think any better, but that was no reason not to keep trying it. He wanted to send me a message. Kill two birds with one stone. Ebenezer nodded. He wanted you stripped of your position as a warden, but Lucio is still the technical commander of the wardens, though Morgan commands in the field. She supported you, and the rest of the senior council overruled him. Betty loved that, I said. Ebenezer chuckled. I thought he was having a stroke. Joy, I said. I didn't want the job to begin with. I know, he said. You got rocks and hard places, boy, not much else. So the Merlin figures he'll show me an execution and scare me into towing the line. I frowned, thinking. I take it there's no word on the attack last year. No one found with mysterious sums of money dumped into their bank accounts that would incriminate a traitor. Not yet, Ebenezer said. Then with the traitor running around loose, all the Merlin has to do is wait for me to screw something up. Then he can call it treason and squish me. Ebenezer nodded, and I saw the warning in his eyes. Another reason to take the job he was offering. He genuinely believes that you are a threat to the Council. If your behavior confirms his belief, he'll do whatever is necessary to stop you. I snorted. There was another guy like that once, name of McCarthy. If the Merlin wants to find a traitor, he'll find one, whether or not one actually exists. Ebenezer scowled, a hint of a Scots burr creeping into his voice, as it did any time he was angry, and he glanced at the Merlin. I, I thought you should know. I nodded, still without looking up at him. I hated being bullied into anything, but I didn't get the vibe that Ebenezer was making an effort to maneuver me into a corner. He was asking a favor. I might well help myself by doing him the favor, but he wasn't going to bring anything onto my head if I turned him down. 
It wasn't his style. I met his eyes and nodded. Okay. He exhaled slowly and nodded back, silent thanks in his expression. Oh, one other thing, he said, and passed me an envelope. What's this? I don't know, he answered. The gatekeeper asked me to give it to you. The gatekeeper. He was the quietest of the wizards on the senior council, and even the Merlin showed him plenty of respect. He was taller than me, which is saying something, and he stayed out of most of the partisan politics of the senior council, which says even more. He knew things he shouldn't be able to know, more so than most wizards, I mean, and as far as I could tell, he'd never been anything but straight with me. I opened the envelope. A single piece of paper was inside, letters in a precise, flowing hand, read, Dresden. In the past ten days, there have been repeated acts of black magic in Chicago. As the senior warden in the region, it falls to you to investigate and find those responsible. In my opinion, it is vital that you do so immediately. To my knowledge, no one else is aware of the situation. Rashid. I rubbed at my eyes. Great. More black magic in Chicago. If it wasn't some raving, psychotic, black-hatted bad guy, it was probably another kid like the one who died a few minutes ago. There wasn't a whole lot of in-between. I was hoping for the murderous madman. Sorry, political correctioneers. Mad person. I could deal with those. I'd had practice. I didn't think I could handle the other. I put the letter back in the envelope, thinking. This was between the gatekeeper and me, presumably. He hadn't asked me publicly, or told Ebenezer what was going on, which meant that I was free to decide how to handle this one. If the Merlin knew about this, and officially gave me the assignment, he'd make damn sure I didn't have much of a choice in how to handle it, and I'd have to do the whole thing under a microscope. The gatekeeper had trusted me to handle whatever was wrong. That was almost worse. Man. Sometimes I get tired of being the guy who's supposed to deal with undeal-withable situations. I looked up to find Ebenezer squinting at me. The expression made his face a mass of wrinkles. What? I asked. You get a haircut or something, Hoss? Uh, nothing new. Why? You look... The old wizard's voice trailed off thoughtfully. Different. My heartbeat sped up a little. As far as I knew... Ebenezer was unaware of the entity who was leasing out the unused portions of my brain, and I wanted to keep it that way. But though he had a reputation for being something of a magical brawler, his specialty the summoning up of primal destructive forces, he had a lot more on the ball than most of the council gave him credit for. It was entirely possible that he had sensed something of the fallen angel's presence within me. Yeah, well... I've been wearing the cloak of the people I spent most of my adult life resenting, I said. Between that and being a cripple, I've been off my sleep for almost a year. That can do it, Ebenezer said, nodding. How's the hand? I bit back my first harsh response, that it was still maimed and scarred, and that the burns made it look like a badly melted piece of wax sculpture. I'd gone up against a bad guy with a brain a couple of years back, and she'd worked out that my defensive magic was designed to stop kinetic energy, not heat. I found that out the hard way when a couple of her psychotic goons sprayed improvised napalm at me. My shield had stopped the flaming jelly, but the heat had gone right through, 
and dry-roasted the hand I'd held out to focus my shield. I held up my gloved left hand and waggled my thumb and the first two fingers in jerky little motions. The other two fingers didn't move much unless their neighbors pulled them. Not much feeling in them yet, but I can hold a beer. Or the steering wheel. Doctor had me playing guitar, trying to move them and use them more. Good, Ebenezer said. Exercise is good for the body, but music is good for the soul. Not the way I play it, I said. Ebenezer grinned wryly and drew a pocket watch from the front pocket of the overalls. He squinted at it. Lunchtime, he said. You hungry? There wasn't anything in his tone to indicate it, but I could read the subtext. Ebenezer had been a mentor to me at a time I'd badly needed it. He taught me just about everything I thought was important enough to be worth knowing. He had been unfailingly generous, patient, loyal, and kind to me. But he had been lying to me the whole time, ignoring the principles he had been teaching me. On the one hand, he taught me about what it meant to be a wizard, about how a wizard's magic comes from his deepest beliefs, about how doing evil with magic was more than simply a crime. It was a mockery of what magic meant, a kind of sacrilege. On the other hand, he'd been the White Council's black staff the whole while. A wizard with a license to kill, to violate the laws of magic, to make a mockery of everything noble and good about the power he wielded in the name of political necessity. And he'd done it. Many times. I had once held the kind of trust and faith in Ebenezer that I had given no one else. I'd built a foundation for my life on what he'd taught me about the use of magic, about right and wrong. But he'd let me down. He'd been living a lie, and it had been brutally painful to learn about it. Two years later, it still twisted around in my belly, a vague and nauseating unease. My old teacher was offering me an olive branch, trying to set aside things that had come between us. I knew that I should go along with him. I knew that he was as human, as fallible as anyone else. I knew that I should set it aside, mend our fences, and get on with life. It was the smart thing to do. It was the compassionate, responsible thing to do. It was the right thing to do. But I couldn't. It still hurt too much for me to think straight about it. I looked up at him. Death threats in the guise of formal decapitation sort of ruin my appetite. He nodded at me, accepting the excuse with a patient and steady expression, though I thought I saw regret in his eyes. He lifted a hand in a silent wave and turned away to walk toward a beat-up old Ford truck that had been built during the Great Depression. Second thoughts pressed in. Maybe I should say something. Maybe I should go for a bite to eat with the old man. My excuse hadn't been untrue, though. There was no way I could eat. I could still feel the droplets of hot blood hitting my face, still see the body lying unnaturally in a pool of blood. My hands started shaking, and I closed my eyes, forcing the vivid, bloody memories out of the forefront of my thoughts. Then I got in the car and tried to leave the memories behind me. The Blue Beetle is no muscle car, but it flung up a respectable amount of gravel as I left. The streets weren't as bad as they usually were, but it was still hotter than hell. So I rolled down the windows at the first stoplight and tried to think clearly. Investigate the ferries, 
great. That was absolutely guaranteed to get complicated before I got any useful answers. If there was one thing fairies hated doing, it was giving you a straight answer about anything. Getting plain speech out of one is like pulling out teeth. Your own teeth. Through your nose. But Ebenezer was right. I was probably the only one on the White Council with acquaintances in both the summer and winter courts of the She. If anyone on the Council could find out, it was me. Yippee. And, just to keep things interesting, I needed to hunt down some kind of unspecified black magic and put a stop to it. That was what wardens spent all their time doing when they weren't fighting a war, and what I'd done two or three times myself, but it wasn't ever pretty. Black magic means a black practitioner of some kind, and they tended to be the sorts of people who were both happy to kill an interfering wizard and able to manage it. Fairies. Black magic. It never rains, but it pours. Chapter 3 Between one heartbeat and the next, the passenger seat of the Blue Beetle was suddenly occupied. I let out a yelp and nearly bounced my car off of a delivery truck. The tires squealed in protest and I started to slide. I turned into it and recovered, but if I'd had another coat of paint on my car, I'd have collided with the one next to me. My heart in my throat, I got the car moving smoothly again and turned to glare at the sudden passenger. Lashiel, a.k.a. the Temptress, a.k.a. the Web Weaver, apparently some kind of photocopy of the personality of a fallen angel, sat in the passenger seat. She could look like anything she chose, but her most common form was that of a tall, athletic blonde wearing a white, Greek-style tunic that fell almost to her knee. She sat with her hands in her lap, staring out the front of the car, smiling very slightly. What the hell do you think you're doing? I snarled at her. Are you trying to get me killed? Don't be such a baby, she replied, her tone amused. No one was harmed. No thanks to you, I growled. Put the seatbelt on. She gave me a level look. Mortal, I have no physical form. I exist nowhere except within your mind. I am a mental image, an illusion, a hologram only you can see. There is no reason for me to wear my seat belt. It's the principle of the thing, I said. My car, my brain, my rules. Put on the damn seat belt or get lost. She heaved a sigh. Very well. She twisted around like anyone would, drawing the seatbelt forward around her waist and clicking it. I knew she couldn't have picked up the physical seatbelt and done that, so what I was seeing was only an illusion, but it was a convincing one. I would have had to make a serious effort to see that the actual seatbelt hadn't moved. Lashiel looked at me. Acceptable? Barely, I said, thinking furiously. Lashiel, as she appeared to me now, was a portion of a genuine fallen angel. The real deal was trapped inside an ancient silver denarius, a Roman coin, which was buried under a couple of feet of concrete in my basement. But in touching the coin, I'd created a kind of outlet for the demon's personality, embodied as an entirely discreet mental entity living right in my own head. Presumably in the 90% of the brain that humans never use, 
Or, in my case, maybe ninety-five. Lachiel could appear to me, could see what I saw and sense what I sensed, could look through my memories to some degree, and most disturbing, could create illusions that I had to work hard to see through, just as she was now creating the illusion of her physical presence in my car, her extremely attractive and wholesome-looking and entirely desirable presence. The bitch. I thought we had an understanding, I growled. I don't want you coming to see me unless I call you. And I have respected our agreement, she said. I simply came to remind you that my services and resources are at your disposal should you need them, and that the whole of myself, currently residing beneath the floor of your laboratory, is likewise prepared to assist you. You act like I wanted you there in the first place. If I knew how to erase you from my head without getting killed, I'd do it in a heartbeat, I replied. The portion of me that shares your mind is nothing but the shadow of my true self, Lachiel said. But have a care, mortal. I am. I exist. And I desire to continue to do so. Like I said, if I could do it without getting killed, I growled. In the meanwhile, unless you want me to chain you into a little black closet in my head, get out of my sight. Her mouth twitched. Maybe an irritation, but nothing more than that showed on her face. As you wish, she said, inclining her head. But if black magic truly is once more rising within Chicago, you may well have need of every tool at hand, and as you must survive for me to survive, I have every reason to aid you. A tiny black box, I said, without holes in the lid, smelling like my high school locker room. Her mouth curled again, an expression of wary amusement. As you wish, my host. And she was gone, vanishing back into the undeveloped faults of my mind, or wherever she went. I shivered, making sure my thoughts were contained, shielded from her perceptions. There was nothing I could do to prevent Lachiel from seeing and hearing everything I did, or from rummaging randomly in my memories, but I had learned that I could at least veil my active thoughts from her. I did so constantly, in order to prevent her from learning too much, too quickly. That would only help her reach her goal, that of convincing me to unearth the ancient silver coin buried under my lab and sealed within spells and concrete. Within the coin, the old Roman denarius, one of a collection of thirty, dwelt the whole of the fallen angel, Lachio. If I chose to ally myself with her, it would get me all kinds of strength. The power and knowledge of a fallen angel could turn anyone into a deadly and virtually immortal threat. At the low, low cost of one's soul. Once you signed on with one of the literal hell's angels, you weren't the only one in the captain's chair anymore. The more you let them help you, the more you surrendered your will to them. And sooner or later, it's the fallen angel that's calling the shots. I'd grabbed the coin a heartbeat before a friend's toddler could reach down for it, and touching its surface had transferred a portion of the personality, the intellect of Lachiel, into my head. She helped me survive several nasty days the previous autumn, and her assistance had been invaluable, which was the problem. I couldn't allow myself to continue relying on her help because sooner or later I'd get used to it. And then 
I'd enjoy it. And at some point, digging up that coin in my basement wouldn't seem like such a bad idea. All of which meant that I had to stay on my guard against the fallen angel's suggestions. The price may have been hidden, but it was still there. Lashiel wasn't wrong, though, about how dangerous situations involving true black magic could become. I might well find myself in need of help. I thought about those who had fought beside me before. I thought about my friend Michael, whose kid had been the one about to pick up the coin. I hadn't seen Michael since then. I hadn't called. He'd called me a couple of times, invited me to Thanksgiving dinner a couple of times, asked if I was all right a couple of times. I had turned down his invitations and cut every phone conversation short. Michael didn't know that I'd picked up one of the blackened denarii, taken possession of a token that could arguably make me a member of the Knights of the Blackened Denarius. I'd fought some of the denarians. I'd killed one of them. They were monsters of the worst sort, and Michael was a Knight of the Cross. He was one of three people on the face of the earth who had been chosen to wield a holy sword, an honest-to-goodness holy sword each of them with what was supposed to be a nail from the cross, capital C, worked into the blade. Michael fought dark and evil things. He beat them. He saved children and innocents in danger, and he would stand up to the darkest creatures imaginable without blinking, so strong was his faith that the Almighty would give him strength enough to defeat the darkness before him. He had no love for his opposites, the denarians, power-hungry psychopaths as determined to cause and spread pain and suffering as Michael was to contain them. I never told him about the coin. I didn't want him to know that I was sharing brain space with a demon. I didn't want him to think less of me. Michael had integrity. Most of my adult life, the White Council at large had been sure that I was some kind of monster— just waiting for the right time to morph into its true form and start laying waste to everything around me. But Michael had been firmly on my side since the first time we'd met. His unwavering support had made me feel a whole hell of a lot better about my life. I didn't want him to look at me the way he'd looked at the denarians we'd fought. So until I got rid of Lashiel's stupid mental sock puppet, I wasn't going to ask him for help. I would handle this on my own. I was fairly sure that my day couldn't get much worse. No sooner had I thought it than there was a horrible crunching sound, and my head snapped back hard against the headrest on the back of the driver's seat. The beetle shuddered and jounced wildly, and I fought to keep it under control. You'd think I would know better by now. Chapter 4 I managed to get one wild look around, and it showed me someone in a real battleship of an old Chrysler, dark gray, windows tinted, and then the car slammed into the Beetle again and nearly sent me into a deadly spin. My head snapped to one side and hit the window, and I could almost smell the smoldering of my tires as they slid forward and sideways simultaneously. I felt the car hit the curb and then bounce up. I wrenched at the steering wheel and the brakes, my body responding to things my stunned brain hadn't caught up to yet. I think I kept it from becoming a total disaster, because instead of spinning off into oncoming traffic or hitting the wall at a sharp angle, I managed to slam the Beatles' passenger side, broadside, into the building beside the street. 
Brick grated on steel until I came to a halt fifty feet later. Stars swarmed over my vision, and I tried to swat them away so that I could get a look at the Chrysler's plates, but it was gone in a heartbeat. Or at least I think it was. Truth be told, my head was spinning so much that the car could have been doing interpretive dance in a lilac tutu, and I might not have noticed. Sitting there seemed like a really good idea, so I sat. After a while, I got the vague notion that I should make sure everyone was all right. I looked at me. No blood, which was positive. I looked blearily around the car. No screaming. No corpses in my rearview mirror. Nothing was on fire. There was broken safety glass everywhere from the passenger side window, but the rear window had been replaced with a sheet of translucent plastic a while back. The Beetle, stalwart crusader against the forces of evil and alternative fuels, was still running, though its engine had acquired an odd moaning wheeze as opposed to the usual surly wheeze. I tried my door. It didn't open. I rolled down my window and hauled myself slowly out of the car. If I could get up the energy to slide across the hood before I got back in, I could audition for the Dukes of Hazard. Here in Hazard County, I drolled to myself, we don't much cotton to hit-and-run automotive assaults. It took an unknown number of minutes for the first cop to arrive, a patrolman I recognized named Grayson. Grayson was an older cop, a big man with a big red nose and a comfortable gut, who looked like he could bounce angry drunks or drink them under the table. Take your pick. He got out of his car and started asking me questions in a concerned tone of voice. I answered him as best I could, but something between my brain and my mouth had shorted out, and I found him eyeing me and then looking around the inside of the beetle for open containers before he sat me down on the ground and started routing traffic around. I got to sit down on the curb, which suited me fine. I watched the sidewalk spin around until someone touched my shoulder. Karen Murphy, head of Chicago PD's Special Investigations Department, looked like someone's cute kid sister. She was maybe a rose petal over five feet tall, had blonde hair, blue eyes, a pug nose, and nearly invisible freckles. She was made all of springy muscle, a gymnast's build that did not preclude feminine curves. She was in a white cotton shirt and blue jeans that day, a cub's ball cap on her head, reflective sunglasses over her eyes. Harry, she asked, you okay? Uncle Jesse's going to be awful disappointed that one of Boss Hogg's flunkies banged up the General Lee, I told her, waving at my car. She stared at me for a moment and then said, Did you know you have a bruise on the side of your head? Nah, I said. I poked a finger at it. Do I? Murphy sighed and gently pushed my finger down. Harry, seriously, if you're so loopy you can't talk to me, I need to get you to a hospital. Sorry, Murph, I told her. It's been a long day already. I got my bells rung pretty good. I'll be fine in a minute. She exhaled, and then nodded and sat down on the curb with me. Mind if I have one of the EMTs look at you, just to be careful? They'd want to take me to a hospital, I said. It's too dangerous. I could short out someone's life support. And the Reds are watching the hospitals, putting hits on our wounded. I could draw fire onto the patients. I know that, she said quietly. I won't let them take you. Oh, okay, then, I said. An EMT checked me out. He shined a light into my eyes, for which I kicked him lightly in the shins. 
He muttered at me for a minute, poked me here and there, examined and measured and counted and so on. Then he shook his head and stood up. Maybe a mild concussion. He should see a doctor to be safe, Lieutenant. Murphy nodded, thanked the EMT, and looked pointedly at the ambulance. He sidled away, his expression disapproving. Murphy sat down with me again. All right, spill. What happened? Someone in a dark gray Chrysler tried to park in my back seat. I waved a hand, annoyed, as she opened her mouth. And no, I didn't get the plates. I was too busy considering a career as a crash test dummy. You got the dummy part down, she said. You into something lately? Not yet, I complained. I mean, hell's bells, Murphy. I got told a half a freaking hour ago that there's bad juju going down somewhere in Chicago. I haven't even had time to start checking into it, and someone's already trying to make me into a commercial for seatbelts and airbags. You sure it was deliberate? Yeah. But whoever it was, he wasn't a pro. Why do you say that? If he had been, he'd have spun me easy. No idea he was there until he'd hit me. Could have bumped me into a spin before I could have straightened out. Flipped my car a few times. Killed me pretty good. I rubbed at the back of my neck. A nice, full-body ache was already spreading out into my muscles. Isn't exactly the best place for it, either. Attack of opportunity, Murphy said. Was that? She smiled a little. When you weren't expecting the shot. But you see it and take it before the opportunity passes you by. Oh, yeah, probably one of those. Murphy shook her head. Look, maybe I should get you to a doctor anyway. No, I said. Really, I'm okay. But I want to get off the street. Soonest. Murphy inhaled slowly and then nodded. I'll take you home. Thanks. Grayson came ambling over to us. Wrecker's on the way, he said. What do we got here? Hit and run, Murphy said. Grayson lifted his eyebrows and eyed me. Yeah? Looked to me like he got hit a couple of times. On purpose, like. For all I know, it was an honest accident, I said. Grayson nodded. There's some clothes in your back seat. Looks like they have blood on them. Leftovers from last Halloween, I said. It's costume stuff. A cloak and robes and such. Had fake blood all over them. It looked cheesy as hell. Grayson snorted. You're worse than my kid. He's still got some of his football jerseys in his back seat from last fall. He probably has a nicer car. I glanced up at the Beetle. It was a real mess, and I winced. It wasn't like the Beetle was a priceless antique or anything, but it was my car. I drove it places. I liked it. In fact, I'm sure it's a nicer car. Grayson let out a wry chuckle. I need to fill out some papers. Are you okay to help me fill in the blanks? Sure, I told him. Thanks for the call, Sergeant, Murphy said. De nada, Grayson replied, touching the brim of his cap with a finger. I'll get those forms, Dresden. As soon as the wrecker gets here. Cool, I said. Grayson moved off, and Murphy stared at me steadily for a moment. What? I asked her quietly. You lied to him, she said, about the clothes and the blood. I twitched one shoulder. And you did it well. I mean, if I didn't know you, she shook her head. It surprises me about you, that's all. You've always been a terrible liar. Um, I said, I wasn't sure how to take that one. Thank you? She let out a wry chuckle. So what's the real story? Not here, I said. Let's talk in a bit. Murphy studied my face for a second, and her frown deepened. Harry, what's wrong? 
The limp, headless body of that nameless young man filled my thoughts. It brought up too many emotions with it, and I felt my throat tighten until I knew I wouldn't be able to speak. So I shook my head a little and shrugged. She nodded. You gonna be all right? There was a particular gentleness in her voice. Murphy had been playing in what amounted to a boys-only league in her work with CPD, and she put off a tough-as-nails aura that made her seem almost as formidable as she actually was. That exterior almost never varied, at least out in the open, with other police officers nearby. But as she looked at me, there was a quiet, definite, and unashamed vulnerability in her voice. We've had our differences in the past, but Murphy was one hell of a good friend. I gave her my best lopsided smile. I'm always all right, more or less. She reached out and twitched a stray bit of hair from my forehead. You're a great big girl, Dresden. One little fender bender and you go all emotional and pathetic. Her eyes flickered to the beetle again and suddenly burned with a cold blue fire. Do you know who did this to you? Not yet, I growled as the wrecker arrived. But you can bet your ass I'm going to find out. Chapter 5 By the time we got back to my place, my head was starting to run at its normal speed, the better to inform me how much it hurt. I had a nice, deep-down body ache to go along with the bruised skull. The light of the afternoon sun stabbed at my eyes in a cheerfully vicious fashion, and I was glad when I shambled down the steps to my basement apartment, disarmed my magical wards, unlocked the door, and shoved hard at it. It didn't open. The previous autumn, zombies had torn apart my steel security door and wrecked my apartment. Though I was getting a modest paycheck from the wardens now, I still didn't have enough money to pay for all the repairs, and I had set out to fix the door on my own. I hadn't framed it very well, but I try to think positive. The new door was arguably even more secure than the old one. Now you could barely get the damn thing open, even when it wasn't locked. While I was in home renovation mode, I put down linoleum in the kitchen, carpet on the living room and bedroom floors, and tile in the bathroom, and let me tell you something. It isn't as easy as those Time Life homeowner books make it look. I had to slam my shoulder against it three or four times, but the door finally groaned and squealed and came open. I thought you were going to have a contractor fix that, Murphy said. When I get the money, I thought you were getting another paycheck now. I sighed. Yeah, but the rate of pay was set in 1959, and the council hasn't given it a cost-of-living increase since. I think it comes up for review in a few more years. Wow, that's even slower than City Hall. Always thinking positive. I went inside, stepping onto the large wrinkle that had somehow formed in the carpet before the door. My apartment isn't huge. There's a fairly roomy living room with a miniature kitchen set in an alcove opposite the door. The door to my tiny bedroom and bathroom is on the right as you come in, with a red brick fireplace set in the wall beside it. Bookshelves, tapestries, and movie posters line the cold stone walls. My original Star Wars poster had survived the attack, though my library of paperbacks had taken a real beating. Those darn zombies. They always dog-ear the pages and crack the spines the minute they're done oozing foul goop and smashing up furniture. I have a couple of second-hand sofas, which aren't hard to get cheap, so replacing them wasn't too bad. 
a pair of comfortable old easy chairs by the fire, a coffee table, and a large mound of gray and black fur rounded out the furnishings. There's no electricity, and it's a dim little hole, but it's a dim, cool little hole, and it was a relief to get out of the broiling sun. The small mountain of fur shook itself, and something thudded against the wall beside it as it rose up into the shape of a large, stocky dog covered in a thick shag of gray fur, complete with an almost leonine mane of darker fur around his neck, throat, chest, and upper shoulders. He went to Murphy straight away, sitting and offering up his right front paw. Murphy laughed and grabbed his paw briefly. Her fingers couldn't have stretched around the offered limb. Hiya, Mouse. She scratched him behind the ears. When did you teach him that, Harry? I didn't, I said, stooping to ruffle Mouse's ears as I went past him to the fridge. Where's Thomas? I asked the dog. Mouse made a chuffing sound and looked at the closed door to my bedroom. I stopped to listen for a moment and heard the faint gurgle of water in the pipes. Thomas was in the shower. I got a Coke out of the fridge and glanced at Murphy. She nodded. I got her one, too, and doddered over to the couch to sit down slowly and carefully, my aches and pains complaining at me the whole while. I opened the Coke, drank, and settled back with my eyes closed. Mouse lumbered over to sit down by the couch and lay his massive head on one knee. He pawed at my leg. I'm fine, I told him. He exhaled through his nose, doggy expression, somehow skeptical, and I scratched his ears to prove it. Thanks for the ride, Murph. Sure, she said. She brought out a plastic sack she'd carried in and tossed it on the floor. It held my robe, stole, and cloak, all of them spattered with blood. She walked over to the kitchen sink and started filling it with cold water. So, let's talk. I nodded and told her about the Korean kid. While I did that, she put my stole in the sink and started washing it briskly in the cold water. That kid is what wizards mean when they talk about warlocks, I said. Someone who has betrayed the purpose of magic. Gone bad, right from the start. She waited a moment and then said, in a quiet, dangerous voice, They killed him here? In Chicago? Yes, I said. I felt even more tired. This is one of our safer meeting places, apparently. You saw it? Yes. You didn't stop it? I couldn't have, I said. There were heavyweights there, Murphy, and... I took a deep breath. I'm not sure they were completely in the wrong. Like hell they weren't, she snarled. I don't give a good goddamn what the White Council does over in England, or South America, or wherever they want to hang around flapping their beards, but they came here. Had nothing to do with you, I said. Nothing to do with the law, that is. It was internal stuff. They would have done the same to that kid no matter where they were. Her movements became jerky for a moment, and water splashed over the rim of the sink. Then she visibly forced herself to relax, put the stole aside, and went to work on the robe. Why do you think that? she asked. The kid had gone in for black magic in a big way, I said. Mind control stuff, robbing people of their free will. She regarded me with cool eyes. I'm not sure I understand. It's the fourth law of magic, I said. You aren't allowed to control the mind of another human. But, hell, it's one of the first things a lot of these stupid kids try. The old Jedi mind trick. Sometimes they start with maybe getting homework overlooked by a teacher or 
convincing their parents to buy them a car. They come into their magic when they're maybe 15 or so, and by the time they're 17 or 18, they've got a full-grown talent. And that's bad? A lot of times, I said. Think about how men that age are. Can't go ten seconds without thinking about sex. Sooner or later, if someone doesn't teach them otherwise, they'll put the psychic arm lock on the head cheerleader to get a date. And more than a date. And then more girls. Or I guess other guys, if I'm going to be PC about it. Someone else gets upset about losing a girlfriend or a daughter getting pregnant, and the kid tries to fix his mistakes with more magic. But why does that mandate execution? Murphy asked. It, I frowned. Getting into someone's mind like that is difficult and dangerous. And sooner or later, while you're changing them, you start changing yourself, too. You remember Mickey Malone? Murphy didn't exactly shudder, but her hand stopped moving for a minute. Mickey Malone was a retired police officer. A few months after he'd gotten out of the game, an angry and vicious spiritual entity had unleashed a psychic assault on him and bound him in spells of torment to boot. The attack had transformed a grandfatherly old retired cop into a screaming maniac, totally out of control. I'd done what I could for the poor guy, but it had been really bad. I remember, Murphy said quietly. When a person gets into someone's head, it inflicts all kinds of damage, sort of like what happened to Mickey Malone. But it damages the one doing it, too. It gets easier to bend others as you get more bent. Vicious cycle. And it's dangerous for the victim. Not just because of what might happen as a direct result of suddenly being forced to believe that the warlock is the god-king of the universe. It strains their psyche. And the more uncharacteristically they're made to feel and act, the more it hurts them. Most of the time, it devolves into a total breakdown. Murphy shivered. Like those office workers Mavra did it to. And the Renfields. A flash of phantom pain went through my maimed hand at the memory. Exactly like that, I said. What can that kind of magic do? She asked, her voice more subdued. Too much. This kid had forced a bunch of people to commit suicide. A bunch more to commit murder. He'd turned a whole gang of people, most of them his family, into his personal slaves. My God, Murphy said quietly. That's hideous. I nodded. That's black magic. You get enough of it in you, and it changes you, stains you. Isn't there anything else the council can do? Not when the kid is that far gone. They tried it all, I said. Sometimes the warlocks seemed to get better, but they all turned back in the end and more people died. So, unless someone on the council takes personal responsibility for the warlock, they just kill them. She thought about that for a moment. Then she asked, Could you have done that? Taken responsibility for him? I shifted uncomfortably. Theoretically, I guess, if I really believed he could be salvaged. She pressed her lips together and stared at the sink. Murph, I said as gently as I knew how, the law couldn't handle someone like that. You couldn't arrest them, contain them, without some serious magic to neutralize their powers. If you tried to bring an angry warlock into holding down at S.I., it would get ugly. Worse than the Lugaru. There's got to be another way, Murphy said. Once a dog goes rabid, you can't bring him back, I said. All you can do is keep him from hurting others. The best solution is prevention. Find the kids displaying serious talent 
and teach them better from the get-go. But the world population has grown so much in the past century that the White Council can't possibly identify and reach them all. Especially with this war on, there just aren't enough of us. She tilted her head, staring at me. Us? That's the first time I've heard you reference the White Council with yourself included in it. I wasn't sure what to say to that, so I drank the rest of my Coke. Murphy went on washing for a minute, set the robe aside, and reached for the gray cloak. She dropped it into the sink, frowned, and then held it up. Look at this, she said. The blood came out when it hit the water, all by itself. It's like that kid never died. Cool, I said quietly. Murphy watched me for a moment. Maybe this is what it feels like for civilians when they see cops doing some of the dirty work. A lot of times they don't understand what's happening. They see something they don't like and it upsets them, because they don't have the full story, aren't personally facing the problem, and don't know how much worse the alternative could be. Maybe, I agreed. It sucks. Sorry. She cast me a fleeting smile, but her expression grew serious again when she crossed the room to sit down near me. Do you really think what they did was necessary? God help me. I nodded. Is this why the council was so hard on you for so long? Because they thought you were a warlock about to relapse? Yeah, except for the part where you're using the past tense. I leaned forward, chewing on my lip for a second. Murph, this is one of those things the cops can't get involved in. I told you there would be things like this. I don't like what happened any more than you do, but please, don't push this. It won't help anyone. I can't ignore a dead body. There won't be one. She shook her head and stared at the coke for a while more. All right, she said. But if the body shows up or someone reports it, I won't have any choice. I understand. I looked around for a change of subject. So, there's black magic afoot in Chicago, according to an annoyingly vague letter from the gatekeeper. Who's he? Wizard. Way mysterious. You believe him? Yeah, I said. So we should be on the lookout for killings and strange incidents and so on. The usual. Right, Murphy said. I'll keep an eye out for corpses, weirdos, and monsters. The door to the bedroom opened, and my half-brother, Thomas, emerged, freshly showered and smelling faintly of cologne. He was right around six feet in height and was built like the high priest of Bowflex. All lean muscle, sculpted and well-formed, not too much of a good thing. He wore a pair of black trousers and black shoes, and was pulling a pale blue t-shirt down over his rippling abs as he came into the room. Murphy watched him, blue eyes gleaming. Thomas is awfully pretty to look at. He's also a vampire of the white court. They didn't go in for fangs and blood so much as pale skin and supernaturally hot sex but just because they fed on raw life force rather than blood didn't make them any less dangerous. Thomas had worked hard to make sure that he kept his hunger under control so that when he fed, he wouldn't hurt anyone too badly. But I knew it had been a difficult struggle for him, and he carried that strain around with him. It was visible in his expression, and it made all of his movements those of a lean, hungry predator. Monsters? he asked. He smiled pleasantly and said, Karen, good afternoon. That's Lieutenant Murphy to you, pretty boy, she shot back. But her face was set in an appreciative smile. 
He grinned back at her from under his hair, which, even when wet and uncombed, was carelessly curling and attractive. Why, thank you for the compliment, he said. He reached down to scratch Mouse's ears, nodded to me, and seized up his big black gym bag. You have some more business come to town, Harry? That's the scuttlebutt, I said. I haven't had time to look into it yet. He tilted his head to one side and frowned at me. What the hell happened to you? Car trouble. Uh-huh, he said. He slung the bag's strap over his shoulder. Look, you need some help, just let me know. He glanced at the clock and said, Gotta run. Sure, I said to his back. He shut the door behind him. Murphy arched an eyebrow. That was abrupt. Are you still getting along? I grimaced and nodded. He's... I don't know, Murph. He's been very distant lately. And gone almost all the time. Day and night. He sleeps and eats here, but mostly when I'm at work. And when I do see him, it's always like that. In passing. He's in a hurry to get somewhere. Where? she asked. I shrugged. You're worried about him, she said. Yeah. He's usually a lot more tense than this. You know, the whole incubus hunger thing. I'm worried that maybe he's decided appetite control was for the birds. Do you think he's hurting anyone? No, I said at once, a little too quickly. I forced myself to calm down and then said, No, not as such. I don't know. I wish he'd talk to me, but ever since last fall, he's kept me at arm's length. Have you asked him? Murphy said. I eyed her. No. Why not? It isn't done that way, I said. Why not? Because guys don't do it like that. Let me get this straight, Murphy said. You want him to talk to you, but you won't actually tell him that or ask him any questions. You sit around with the silence and tension and no one says anything. That's right, I said. She stared at me. You need a prostate to understand, I said. She shook her head. I understand enough, she rose and said. You're idiots. You should talk to him. Maybe, I said. Meanwhile, I'll keep my eyes open. If I find anything odd, I'll get in touch. Thank you. What are you going to do? Wait for sundown, I said. Then what? she asked. I rubbed at my aching head, feeling a sudden surge of defiance for whoever had run me off the road and whatever black magic-y jerk had decided to mess around with my hometown. Then I put on my wizard hat and start finding out what's going on. Chapter 6 Murphy stayed until she was sure I wasn't going to suddenly drop unconscious, but made me promise to call her in a couple of hours to be sure. Mouse escorted her to the door when she left, and Murphy swung it shut with two hands and a grunt of effort in order to make it close snugly into the frame. Her car started, departed. I prodded my brain with a sharp stick until it figured out my next move. My brain pointed out that I knew the current summer night of the summer court, and that the guy owed me some fairly big favors. I'd saved his life when he'd just been a terrified changeling, trying not to get swallowed up by an incipient war between winter and summer. When everything settled, he was the new summer knight, the mortal champion of the summer court. It gave him a lot of influence with fully half of the she-realm, and he'd probably know more about what was going on there than any other native of the real world. My brain thought it would be really wonderful if maybe I could make one little phone call to fix and get all the information I needed about the she-courts handed to me on a silver platter. 
My brain is sometimes overly optimistic, but I indulged it on the off chance that I came up a winner in the investigative lottery. I reached for the phone. It rang eleven times before someone answered. Yes? Fix? I asked. Ugh, answered a rumpled-sounding male voice. Who is this? Harry Dresden. Harry! His voice brightened with immediate, if somewhat sleepy, cheer, which seemed far more appropriate to the summer night of the she-courts. Hey, how are you? What's up? That's the question of the day, I said. I need to talk to you about summer business. The sleepiness vanished from his voice. So did the friendliness. Oh. Look, it's nothing big, I started. I just need to... Harry, he said, his voice sharp. Fix had never cut me off before. In fact, if you'd asked my professional opinion a year before, I'd have told you he never interrupted anyone in his life. We can't talk about this. The line might not be secure. Come on, man, I said. No one can monitor the phone line with a spell. It'd burn out in a second. Someone isn't playing by the old rules anymore, Harry, he said. And a phone tap is not a difficult thing to engineer. I frowned. Good point, I allowed. Then we need to talk. When? Soonest. Accorded neutral territory, he responded. He meant McAnally's pub. Mac's place has always been a hangout for the supernatural crowd in Chicago. When the war broke out, someone managed to get it placed on a list of neutral territories where, by the agreements known as the Unseelie Accords, everyone respected the neutrality of the property and was expected to behave in a civil fashion when present. It might not have been a private rendezvous, but it was probably the safest place in town to discuss this kind of thing. Fine, I said. When? I've got business tonight. The soonest I can do it is tomorrow. Lunch? Noon, I replied. There was a sleepy murmur on the other end of the phone. A woman's voice. Shh, Fix said. Sure, Harry. I'll see you there. We hung up, and I regarded the phone with pursed lips. Fix sleeping this late in the day? And with a girl in bed with him, no less? And interrupting wizards without a second thought? He'd come a ways. Of course, he'd had a lot of exposure to the fairy since the last time I'd seen him, and if he had anything like the power I'd seen the champions of the She display before, he'd have had time to get used to his new strength. You can never tell how someone's going to handle power, not until you hand it to them and see what they do with it. Fix had certainly changed. I got a little twist in my gut that told me I should employ a great deal more than average caution when I spoke to him. I didn't like the feeling. Before I could think about it for too long, I made myself pick up the phone and move on with what my brain told me was a reasonable step two, checking around to see if anyone had heard anything about bad juju running around town. I called several people. Billy the werewolf, recently married... Mortimer Lindquist, ectomancer, Waldo Butters, medical examiner and composer of the Quasimoda Polka, a dozen magical small-timers I knew, plus my ex's editor at the Midwestern Arcane. None of them had heard of anything, and I warned them all to keep an ear to the ground. I even put in a call to the archive, but all I got was an answering service, and no one returned my call. I sat and stared at the phone's base for a moment the receiver buzzing a dial tone in my gloved left hand. I hadn't called Michael, or Father Forthill. I probably should have, working on the basic notion that more help was better help. 
Then again, if the home office wanted Michael on the case, he'd be there regardless of whether or not anyone called him and how many immovable objects stood in the way. I've seen it happen often enough to trust that it was true. It was a good rationalization, but it wasn't fooling anyone, not even me. The truth was that I didn't want to talk to either one of them unless I really, really, really had to. The dial tone turned into that annoying buzz, buzz, buzz of a no-connection signal. I hung the phone back up, my hand unsteady. Then I got up, reached down to the clumsily trimmed area of carpet that covered the trapdoor set in the apartment's floor, and pulled it open onto a wooden stepladder that folded out and led down into my laboratory. The lab is in the sub-basement, which is a much better name for it than the basement basement. It's little more than a big concrete box with a ladder leading up and out of it. The walls are lined with overflowing white wire shelves, the cheap kind you can get at Walmart. In my lab, they store containers of every kind, from plastic bags to microwave-safe plastic dinnerware to heavy wooden boxes, and even one lead-lined, lead-sealed box where I store a tiny amount of depleted uranium dust. Other books, notebooks, envelopes, paper bags, pencils, and apparently random objects of many kinds crowd each other for space on the shelves, all except for one plain, homemade wooden shelf which held only candles at either end, four romance novels, a Victoria's Secret catalog, and a bleached human skull. A long table ran down the middle of the room, leaving a blank section of floor at the far end kept perfectly clear of any clutter whatsoever. A ring of plain silver was set into the floor, my summoning circle. Underneath it lay a foot and a half or so of concrete, and then another heavy metal box, wrapped with its own little circle of wards and spells. Inside the box was a blackened silver coin. My left palm, which had been so badly burned except for an outline of skin in the shape of Lachiel's angelic symbol, suddenly itched. I rubbed it against my leg and ignored it. My work table had been crowded with material for most of the time it had been down in my lab, but that no longer was the case. At that point, I felt I owed someone an apology. When Murphy had asked me about the money from the council, the answer I'd given her was true enough. They'd set the pay rate for wardens in the fifties. But even the council wasn't quite hide-bound enough to ignore things like standard inflation, and the warden's paychecks had kept pace through discretionary funding, and... My God, I'm starting to sound like part of the establishment. Long story short, the wardens have sneaky ways of getting paid more, and the money I was getting from them... While not stellar, was nothing to sneeze at either. But I hadn't been spending it on things like fixing up my apartment. I'd been spending it on what was on my work table. Bob, I said, wake up. Orange flames kindled wearily to life inside the open eye sockets of the skull. Oh, for crying out loud, a voice from within complained. Can't you take a night off? It'll be finished when it's finished, Harry. No rest for the wicked, Bob, I said cheerfully, and that means we can't slack off either, or they'll outwork us. The skull's voice took on a whiny tone. 
But we've been tinkering with that stupid thing every night for six months. You're growing a cowlick in buck teeth, by the way. You keep this up and you'll have to retire to a home for magical geeks and nerds. Pish-tosh, I said. You can't say pish-tosh to that, Bob grumped. You don't even know what it means. Sure I do. It means spirits of air should shut up and assist their wizard before he sends them out to patrol for fungus demons again. I get no respect, Bob sighed. Okay, okay, what do you want to do now? I gestured at the table. Is it ready? Ready, Bob said. It isn't ever going to be ready, Harry. Your subject is fluid, always changing. Your model must change too. If you want it to be as accurate as possible, it's going to be a headache keeping it up to date. I do, and I know, I told him. So, talk. Where are we? Is it ready for a test run? Put me in the lake, Bob said. I reached up to the shelf obligingly, picked up the skull, and set it down on the eastern edge of the table. The skull settled down beside the model city of Chicago. I'd built it onto my table in as much detail as I'd been able to afford with my new paycheck. The skyline rose up more than a foot from the tabletop, models of each building made from cast pewter, also expensive, given I'd had to get each one made individually. Streets made of real asphalt ran between the buildings, lined with streetlights and mailboxes in exacting detail. And all in all, I had the city mapped out to almost two miles from Burnham Harbor in every direction. Detail began to fail toward the outskirts of the model, but as far as I'd been able to, I modeled every building, every road, every waterway, every bridge, and every tree with as much accuracy as I knew how. I'd also spent months out on the town, collecting bits and pieces from every feature on my map. Bark from the trees, usually, chips of asphalt from the streets. I'd taken a hammer and knocked a chip or two off every building modeled there, and those pieces of the originals had been worked into the structure of their modeled counterparts. If I'd done it correctly, the model would be of enormous value to my work. I'd be able to use various techniques to do all kinds of things in town track down lost objects, listen in on conversations happening within the area depicted by the model, follow people through town from the relative safety of my lab. Lots of cool stuff. The model would let me send my magic throughout Chicago with a great deal more facility and with a far broader range of applications than I could currently manage. Of course, if I hadn't done it correctly, this map, Bob said, is pretty cool. I'd have thought you'd have shown it off to someone by now. Nah, I said. Tiny model of the city down here in my basement laboratory. Sort of projects more of that evil, psychotic Lex Luthor vibe than I'd like. Bah, Bob said. None of the evil geniuses I've ever worked for could have handled something like this. He paused. Though some of the psychotics could have, I guess. If that's meant to be flattering, you need some practice. What am I if not good for your ego, boss? The skull turned slowly, left to right, candle flame eyes studying the model city. Not its physical makeup, I knew, but the miniature ley lines that I'd built into the surface of the table, the courses of magical energy that flowed through the city like blood through the human body. It looks... He made a sound like someone idly sucking a breath through his teeth. Hey... 
It looks not bad, Harry. You've got a gift for this kind of work. That model of the museum really altered the flow around the stadium into something mostly accurate, speaking thaumaturgically. Is that even a real word? I asked. It should be, he said with a superior sniff. Little Chicago might be able to handle something if you want to give it a test run. The skull spun around to face me. Tell me that this doesn't have something to do with the bruises on your face. I'm not sure it does, I said. I got word today that the gatekeeper, Bob shivered, thinks that there's black magic afoot in town and that I need to do something about it. And you want to try to use Little Chicago to find it? Maybe, I said. Do you think it'll work? I think that the Wright brothers tested their new stuff at Kitty Hawk instead of trying it over the Grand Canyon for a reason, Bob said. Specifically, because if the plane folded due to flawed design, they might survive it at Kitty Hawk. Or maybe they couldn't afford to travel, I said. Besides, how dangerous could it be? Bob stared at me for a second. Then he said, You've been pouring energy into this thing every night for six months, Harry. And right now, it's holding about 300 times the amount of energy that kinetic ring you wear will contain. I blinked. At full power, that ring could almost knock a car onto its side. 300 times that kind of energy translated to, well, something I'd rather not experience within the cramped confines of the lab. It's got that much in it? Yes, and you haven't tested it yet. If you've screwed up some of the harmonics, it could blow up in your face, worst-case scenario. Best case, you only blow out the project and set yourself back to ground zero. To square one, I corrected him. Square one is the beginning of a project. Ground zero is the area immediately under a bomb blast. One may tend to resemble the other, Bob said sourly. I'll just have to live with the risk, I said. That's the exciting life of a professional wizard and his daring assistant. Oh, please, assistants get paid. In answer, I reached down to a paper bag out of sight below the table and withdrew two paperback romances. Bob let out a squeaking sound, and his skull jounced and jittered on the blue-painted surface of the table that represented Lake Michigan. Is that it? Is that it? He squeaked. Yes, I said. They're rated burning hot by some kind of romance society. Lots of sex and kink, Bob caroled. Gimme! I dropped them back into the bag and looked from Bob to little Chicago. The skull spun back around. You know what kind of black magic? he asked. No clue, just black. Vague, yet unhelpful, Bob said. Annoyingly so. Oh, the gatekeeper didn't do it to annoy you, Bob said. He did it to prevent any chance of paradox. He, I blinked, he what? He got this from hindsight, he had to, Bob said. Hindsight, I murmured. You mean he went to the future for this? Well, Bob hedged, that would break one of the laws, so probably not. But he might have sent himself a message from there, or maybe gotten it from some kind of prognosticating spirit. He might even have developed some ability for that himself. Some wizards do. Meaning what? I asked. Meaning that it's possible nothing has happened yet, but that he wanted to put you on your guard against something that's coming in the immediate future. Why not just tell me? I asked. Bob sighed. You just don't get this, do you? 
I guess not. Okay. Let's say he finds out that someone is going to steal your car tomorrow. Heh, <laughs> I said bitterly. Okay, let's say that. Right. Well, he can't just call you up and tell you to move your car. Why not? Because if he significantly altered what happened with his knowledge of the future, it could cause all sorts of temporal instabilities. It could cause new parallel realities to split off from the point of the alteration, ripple out into multiple alterations he couldn't predict, or kind of backlash into his consciousness and drive him insane. Bob glanced at me again. Which, you know, might not do much to deter you, but other wizards take that kind of thing seriously. Thank you, Bob, I said, but I still don't get why any of those things would happen. Bob sighed. Okay, Temporal Studies 101. Let's say that he hears about your car being stolen. He comes back to warn you, and as a result, you keep your car. Sounds good so far. But if your car never got stolen, Bob said, then how did he know to come back and warn you? I frowned. That's paradox, and it can have all kinds of nasty backlash. Theory holds that it could even destroy our reality if it happened in a weak enough spot. But that's never been proven and never happened. You can tell on account of how everything keeps existing. Okay, I said. So what's the point in sending the message at all if it can't change anything? Oh, it can, Bob said. If it's done subtly enough, indirectly enough, you can get all kinds of things changed. Like, for example... He tells you that your car is going to be stolen, so you move it to a parking garage, where instead of getting stolen by the junkie who's going to shoot you and take the car on the street, you get jacked by a professional who takes the car without hurting you, because by slightly altering the fate of the car, he indirectly alters yours. I frowned. That's a pretty fine line. Yes, which is why not mucking around with time is one of the laws, Bob said. It's possible to change the past, but you have to do it indirectly. And if you screw it up, you run the risk of paradoxageddon. So what you're saying is that by sending me this warning, he's indirectly working some other angle completely. I'm saying that the gatekeeper is usually a hell of a lot more specific about this kind of thing, Bob said. All of the senior council take black magic seriously. There's got to be a reason he's throwing it at you like this. My gut says he's working from a temporal angle. You don't have any guts, I said sourly. Your jealousy of my intellect is an ugly, ugly thing, Harry, Bob said. I scowled. Get to the point. Right, boss, said the skull. The point is that black magic is very hard to find when you look for it directly. If you try to bring up instances of black magic on your model, like Little Chicago with some kind of evil juju radar array, it's probably going to blow up in your face. The gatekeeper put me on guard against black magic, I said. But maybe he's telling me that so I can watch for something else, something black magic related. Which might be a lot easier to find with your model, Bob said cheerfully. Sure, I said, if I had the vaguest idea of what to look for. I frowned, scowling. So instead of looking for black magic, we look for things that go along with black magic. Bingo, Bob said. And the more normal, the better.
I pulled out my stool and sat down, frowning. So, how about we look for corpses? Blood. Fear. Those are pretty standard black wizardry accessories. Pain, too, Bob said. They're into pain. So's the BDSM community, I said. In a city of eight million, there are tens of thousands like that. Oh, good point, Bob said. One would almost think you should have thought of that one, I gloated. But for the BDSM crowd, the pain isn't something they fear. So you just look for the fear instead. Real fear, not movie theater fear. Terror. And there can't be a lot of spilled human blood in places with no violent activity, unless someone slips at the hospital or something. Ditto the corpses. I drummed the fingers of my good hand thoughtfully on the table beside Bob. Do you think little Chicago could handle that? He considered for a long moment before he said, in a cautious tone, Maybe one of them, but this will be a very difficult, very long, and very dangerous spell for you, Harry. You're good for your years, but you still don't have the kind of fine control you'll get as you age. It's going to take all of your focus, and it will take a lot out of you, assuming you can manage it at all. I took a deep breath and nodded slowly. Fine. We treat it as a full-blown ritual, then. Cleansing, meditation, incense, the works. Even if you do everything right, Bob said, it might not work. And if little Chicago turns out to be flawed, it would be very bad for you. I nodded slowly, staring at the model city. There were eight million people in my town, and out of all of them, there were maybe two or three who could stand up to black magic, who had the kind of knowledge and power it took to stop a black wizard. Not only that, but odds were good that I was the only one who could actively find and counter someone before he got the murder ball rolling. I was also presumably the only one who was forewarned. Maybe it would be better to slow this down. Wait for developments my friends would report to me. Then I could get a better read on the threat and how to deal with it. I mean, was it worth as much as my life to try this spell when patience would get me information that was almost as good? It might not be worth my life, but it would probably cost someone else's. Black magic isn't the kind of thing that leaves people whole behind it, and sometimes the victims it kills are the lucky ones. If I didn't employ the model, I'd have to wait for the bad guys to make the first move. So I had to do it. I was tired of looking at corpses and victims. Pull together everything you know about this kind of spell, Bob, I told him quietly. I'm going to get some food, and then we'll lay out the ritual. I'll start looking for fear come sundown. We'll do, Bob said, and for once he was serious and didn't sass me. Yikes. I started back up my ladder before I thought about it too much and changed my mind. Chapter 7 Ritual magic is not my favorite thing in the whole world. It doesn't matter what I'm trying to accomplish. I still feel sort of silly when it comes time to bathe and then dress myself up in a white robe with a hood, lighting candles and incense, chanting and mucking around with a small arsenal of candles, wands, rods, liquids, and other props used in ritual magic. Self-conscious as I might be, though, 
The props and the process offered me an overriding advantage when it came to working with heavy magic. They freed up my attention from the dozens of little details that I would normally be forced to imagine and keep firmly in mind. Most of the time, I never gave the proper visualization a second thought. I'd been doing it for so long that it was practically second nature. That was fine for short-term work, where I had to hold my thoughts in perfect balance only for a few seconds. But for a longer spell, I would need an exponentially greater amount of focus and concentration. It took someone with a lot more mental discipline than me to cast a spell through a half-hour ritual without help. And while there were probably experienced wizards who could manage it, few bothered to try it when the alternative was usually simpler, safer, and more likely to work. I rounded up the props I would need for the ritual, with the elements first. A silver cup, which I would fill with wine, for water. A geode, the size of my fist, its internal crystals, vibrant shades of purple and green, for earth. Fire would be represented by a fairy-made candle, formed from unused beeswax, its wick braided from the hairs of a unicorn's mane. Air would be anchored by a pair of hawkwing feathers wrought from gold with impossibly fine detail and precision by a band of Svartals whose mortal contact sold examples of their craftsmanship out of a shop in Norway. And for the fifth element, spirit, I would use my mother's silver pentacle amulet. Other props followed to engage the senses. Incense for scent and fresh grapes for taste. Tactile forces would depend upon a double-sided three-inch square I'd made from velvet on one side and sandpaper on the other. A rather large, deeply colored opal set within a silver frame reflected back every color of the rainbow and would hold down the sight portion of the spell. And when I got rolling, I would strike my old tuning fork against the floor for sound. Mind, body, and heart came last. For mind, I would use an old K-bar military knife as my ritual athame, as I usually did. Fresh droplets of my blood upon a clean white cloth would symbolize my physical body. For heart, I placed several photos of those who were dear to me inside a sack of silver-white silk. My parents, Susan, Murphy, Thomas, Mouse, and Mr., my thirty-pound gray tomcat, currently on walkabout, and after a brief hesitation, Michael and his family. I prepared the ritual circle on my lab floor, carefully sweeping it, mopping it, sweeping it again, then cleansing it with captured rainwater poured from a small silver ewer. I brought in all the props and laid them out, ready to go. Then I prepared myself. I lit sandalwood incense and more fairy candles in the bathroom, started up the shower, then went step by step through a routine of washing while focusing my mind on the task at hand. The water sluicing over me would drain away any random magical energies, a crucial step in the spell. Contaminating the spell's energy with other forces would cause it to fail. I finished bathing, dried, and slipped into my white robe. Then I knelt on the floor at the head of the stairs down to the lab, closed my eyes, and began meditating. Just as no other energies could be allowed into the ritual, my concentration had to be of similar purity. Random thoughts, worries, fears, and emotions would sabotage the spell. I focused on my breathing, upon stilling my thoughts. 
and felt my limbs grow a little chill as my heartbeat slowed. Worries of the day, my aches and pains, my thoughts of the future, all had to go. It took a while to get myself in the proper frame of mind, and by the time I was finished, it had been dark for two hours, and my knees ached somewhere in the background. I opened my eyes, and everything came into a brilliantly sharp focus that discounted the existence of anything except myself, my magic, and the ritual awaiting me. It had been a long, wearying preparation, and I hadn't even started with the magic yet. But if the spell could help me nail the bad guys quicker, the hours of effort would be well worth it. Silence and focus ruled. I was ready. And then the fucking phone rang about a foot from my ear. It is possible that I made some kind of unmanly noise when I jumped. My posture-numbed legs didn't respond as quickly as I needed them to, and I lurched awkwardly to one side, half-falling onto the nearest couch. Damn it! I screamed in sudden frustration. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! Mouse looked up from his lazy drowse and tilted his head to one side, ears up and forward. What are you looking at? I snarled. Mouse's jaw dropped open into a grin, and his tail wagged. I rubbed my hand at my face while the phone kept on ringing. It had been a while since I'd done any seriously focused magic like that, and granted, I really don't get very many calls, but all the same, I should have remembered to unplug the phone. Four hours of preparation gone to waste. The phone kept ringing, and my head pounded in time with it. I ached. Stupid phone. Stupid car crash. I tried to think positive, because I read somewhere that it's important to do that at times of stress and frustration. Whoever wrote that was probably selling something. I picked up the phone and growled, Screw thinking positive, into the handset. Um, said a woman's voice. What did you say? Screw thinking positive, I half shouted. What the hell do you want? Well, maybe I have the wrong number. I was calling to speak to Harry Dresden. I frowned, my mind taking in details, despite my temper's bid to take over the show. The voice was familiar to me, rich, smooth, adult, but the speaker's speech patterns had an odd hesitancy to them. Her words had an odd, thick edge on them, too. An accent? Speaking, I said, annoyed as hell, but speaking. Oh, is this a bad time? I rubbed at my eyes and choked down a vicious response. Who is this? Oh, she said, as if the question surprised her. Harry, it's Molly. Molly Carpenter. Ah, I said. I clapped one palm to my face. My friend Michael's oldest daughter. Way to roll, model, Harry. You sure do come off like a calm, responsible adult. Molly, didn't recognize you at first. I'm sorry, she said. The S sound was a little bit thick. Had she been drinking? Not your fault, I said, which it hadn't been. For that matter, the interruption might have been a stroke of luck. If my head was still too scrambled from that afternoon's automobile hijinks to remember to unplug the phone, I didn't have any business trying to cast that spell. Probably would have blown my own head off. What do you need, Molly? Um she said, and there was nervous tension in her voice. I need... I need you to come bail me out. Bail, I said. You're being literal? Yes, 
You're in jail? Yes, she said. Oh, my God, I said. Molly, I don't know if I can do that. You're 16. Seventeen, she said, with sparks of indignation and another thick S. Whatever, I said. You're a juvenile. You should call your parents. No, she said, something near panic in her voice. Harry, please. I can't call them. Why not? Because I only get the one phone call and I used it to call you. Actually, I don't think that's exactly how it works, Molly. I sighed. In fact, I'm surprised that I frowned, thinking, you lied about your age. If I hadn't, Mom and Dad would be here already, she said. Harry, please, look, there's there's a lot of trouble at home right now. I can't explain it here, but if you'll come get me, I swear, I'll tell you all about it. I sighed again. I don't know, Molly. Please, she said. It's just this once, and I'll pay you back. And I'll never ask something like this of you again, I promise. Molly had long since earned her Ph.D. in wheedling. She managed to sound vulnerable and hopeful and sad and desperate and sweet all at the same time. I'm pretty sure she wouldn't need half that much effort to wrap her father around a finger. Her mother, Charity, was probably a different story, though. I sighed. Why me? I asked. I hadn't been talking to Molly, but she answered, I couldn't think who else to call, she said. I need your help. I'll call your dad. I'll come down with him. Please, no, she said quietly, and I didn't think she was feigning the quiet desperation in her voice. Please. Why fight the inevitable? I've always been a sucker for ye old damsel in distress. Maybe not as big a sucker now as I had been in the past, but the insanity did not seem much less potent than it had always been. All right, I said. Where? She gave me the location of one of the precincts not too far from my apartment. I'm coming, I told her. And this is the deal. I'll listen to what you have to say. If I don't like it, I'm going to your parents. But you don't, Molly, I said. And I felt my voice harden. You're already asking me for a lot more than I feel comfortable with. I'll come down there to get you. You tell me what's up. After that, I make the call and you abide by it. But this isn't a negotiation, I said. Do you want my help or not? There was a long pause, and she made a frustrated little sound. All right, she said. After a beat, she hurried to add, And thank you. Yeah, I said, and eyed the candles and incense and thought about all the time I'd thrown away. I'll be along within the hour. I would have to call a cab. It wasn't the most heroic way to ride to the rescue, but walkers can't be choosers. I got up to dress and told Mouse, I'm a sucker for a pretty face. When I came out of the bedroom in clean clothes, Mouse was sitting hopefully by the door. He batted a paw at his leash, which hung over the doorknob. I snorted and said, You ain't pretty for a face. But I clipped the leash to his collar and called for a cab. Chapter 8 the cabbie drove me to the 18th district of the CPD on Larrabee. The neighborhood around it has seen a couple of better days and thousands of worse ones. The once infamous Cabrini Green isn't far away, but urban renewal and the efforts of local neighborhood watches, community groups, church congregations from several faiths, 
and cooperation with the local police department had changed some of Chicago's nastier streets into something resembling actual civilization. The nasty hadn't left the city, of course, but it had been driven away from what had once been a stronghold of decay and despair. What was left behind wasn't the prettiest section of town, but it bore the quiet, steady signs of a place that had a passing acquaintance with law and order. Of course, the cynical would point out that Cabrini Green was only a short walk from the Gold Coast, one of the richest areas of the city, and that it was no coincidence that funds had been sent that way by the powers that be through various municipal programs. The cynical would be right. But it didn't change the fact that the people of the area had worked and fought to reclaim their homes from fear, crime, and chaos. On a good day, the neighborhood made you feel like there was hope for us as a species, that we could drive back the darkness with enough will and faith and help. That kind of thinking had taken on a whole new dimension for me in the past year or two. The police station wasn't new, but it was free of graffiti, litter, and shady characters of any kind, at least until I showed up, in jeans and a red t-shirt, bruised and unshaven. I got a weird look from the cabbie, who probably didn't get all that many sandalwood-scented fares to drop off there. Mouse presented his head to the cabbie while I paid through the driver's window and got a smile and a polite scratching of the ears in reply. Mouse has better people skills than me. I turned to walk up to the station, stubbornly putting my money back in my wallet with my stiff left hand as I walked, and Mouse walked beside me. The hair on the back of my neck suddenly crawled and I looked up at the reflection in the glass doors as I approached them. A car had pulled up on the far side of the street behind me and was stopped directly under a no-parking sign. I saw a vague shadow inside the car, a white sedan I did not recognize, and which certainly wasn't the dark gray car that had run me off the road earlier, but my instincts told me I was being tailed by someone. You don't park illegally like that in front of a police station, no less, just because you're bored. Mouse let out a low rumble of a growl, which made me grow a shade more wary. Mouse rarely made noise at all. When he did, I had begun to think it was because there was some kind of dark presence around. Evil magic, hungry vampires, and deadly necromancers had all earned snarls of warning. But he never made a peep when the mailman came by. So, adding it up, someone from the nasty end of my side of the supernatural street was following me around town. Good grief. At least I usually know who I'm pissing off and why. By the time an investigation gets to the point where I'm being followed, there's usually been at least one crime scene and maybe even a corpse or two. Mouse growled another warning. I see him, I told Mouse quietly. Easy, just keep walking. He fell silent again, and we never broke stride up to the door. Molly Carpenter appeared and opened the door for us. The last time I'd seen Molly, she'd been an awkward adolescent, all skinny legs, bright-eyed interest, and hesitation of movement offset by an appealing personal confidence and frequent smiles and laughter. But that had been years ago. Since then, Molly had gotten all growed up. She strongly favored her mother, Charity. Both of them were tall for women, only an inch or two under six feet. Both of them blonde, fair, 
blue-eyed, and both of them built, like the proverbial brick house, somehow managing to combine strength, grace, and beauty that showed as much in their bearing, expression, and movement as it did in their appearance. Charity was a rose wrought of stainless steel. Molly could have been her younger self. Of course, I doubted Charity had ever worn an outfit like Molly's. Molly stood facing me in a long, gauzy black skirt, shredded artistically in several places. She wore fishnet tights beneath it, showing more leg and hip than any mother would prefer. The tights, too, were artfully torn in patches to display pale, smooth skin of thigh and calf. She had army surplus combat boots on her feet, laced up with neon pink and blue laces. She wore a tight tank top, its fabric white, thin, and strained by the curves of her breasts, and a short black bolero jacket bearing a huge gaudy button printed with the logo SPLATTERCON! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, in dripping red letters. Black leather gloves covered her hands. But wait, that's not all. Her blonde hair had been dyed, party-colored, one half of her head bubblegum pink, the other sky blue, and it had been cut at a uniform length that ended just below her chin and left most of her face covered by a close veil of hair. She wore a lot of makeup, way too much eyeliner and mascara, and black lipstick colored her mouth. Bright rings of gold gleamed in both nostrils, her lower lip and her right eyebrow, and there was a bead of gold in that little dent just under her lower lip. There were miniature barbell-shaped bulges at the tips of her breasts, where the thin fabric emphasized rather than concealed them. I didn't want to know what else had been pierced. I know I didn't because I told myself that very sternly. I didn't want to know, even if it was, hell, a little intriguing. But wait, that's still not all. She had a tattoo on the left side of her neck in the shape of a slithering serpent and I could see the barbs and curves of some kind of tribal design flickering out from the neckline of her tank top. Another design, whirling loops and spirals, covered the back of her right hand and vanished up under the sleeve of the jacket. She watched me with one eyebrow arched, waiting for me to react. Her posture and expression both made the effort to say that she was way too cool to care what I thought, but I could practically taste the uncertainty she was working to hide and her anxiety. Long time no see, I said finally. Hello, Harry, she replied. The words came out a little thick, and I saw more gold flash near the tip of her tongue. Of course. It's odd, I said. From here, it doesn't look like you're in jail at all. I know, she said. She managed to keep her voice mostly steady, but her face and throat colored pink in a guilty flush. She shifted her weight restlessly, and an odd clicking sound came from her mouth. Good grief. She'd picked up a tick of rattling her tongue piercing against her teeth when she was nervous. Um, I should apologize, I guess. Uh, she floundered. I let her. A long silence made her look more flustered, but I had no intention of politely helping her out of it. Mouse sat down between me and Molly, watching her intently. Molly smiled at the dog and reached down to pet him. Mouse tensed up, and a low rumbling came from his chest. 
Molly moved her hand toward him again, and my dog's chest suddenly rumbled with a deep and warning growl. The last time Mouse had growled at anything, for that matter made much noise at all, it had been a crazed sorcerer who made fair headway toward eviscerating me and summoned a twenty-foot-long demon cobra to kill my dog. Mouse killed it instead. Then, at my command, Mouse killed the sorcerer, too. And now he was growling at Molly. Be polite, I told him firmly. She's a friend. Mouse gave me a look and then fell quiet again. He sat calmly as Molly let him sniff her hand and scratch at his ears, but his wary body language didn't change. When did you get a dog? Molly asked. Mouse was spooked, though not the way he was when serious bad guys were around. Interesting. I kept my tone neutral. A couple of years ago, his name is Mouse. What breed is he? He's a West Highlands Dogosaurus, I said. He's huge. I said nothing, and the girl floundered some more. I'm sorry, she said finally. I lied to you to get you to come down here. Really? She grimaced. I'm sorry, I just, I really need your help. I just thought that if I could talk to you in person about it, you might be, I mean... I sighed. Regardless of how intriguingly rounded her tight shirt was, she was still a kid. Call a spade a spade, Molly, I said. You figured if you could get me to come all the way down here, you'd have a chance to flutter your eyelashes and get me to do whatever it is you really want me to do. She glanced aside. It isn't like that. It's just like that. No, she began. I didn't want this to be a bad thing. You manipulated me. You took advantage of my friendship. How is that not a bad thing? My headache started rising up again. Give me one good reason I shouldn't turn and walk away right now. Because my friend is in trouble, she said. I can't help him, but you can. What friend? His name is Nelson. In jail? He didn't do it she assured me. They never did. He's your age? I asked. Almost. I arched an eyebrow. Two years older, she amended. Then tell legal adult Nelson he should call a bail bondsman. We tried that. They can't get to him before tomorrow. And tell him to bite the bullet and spend the night in the lockup, or else to call his parents. I turned to go. Molly caught my wrist. He can't, she said, desperation in her voice. There's no one for him to call. He's an orphan, Harry. I stopped walking. Well, damn it. I'd been an orphan, too. It hadn't been fun. I could tell you some stories, but I make it a personal policy not to review them often. They amount to a nightmare that started with my father's death, followed by years and years of feeling acutely, perpetually alone. Sure, there's a system in place to care for orphans, but it's far from perfect, and it is, after all, a system. It isn't a person looking out for you. It's forms and carbon copies and people with names you quickly forget. The lucky kids more or less randomly get tapped by foster parents who genuinely care. But for all the puppies at the pound who don't get chosen... Life turns into one big lesson on how to look out for yourself, because there's no one in this world who cares enough to do it for you. It's a horrible feeling. I don't care to experience even the faded memory of it, 
but if I just hear the word orphan aloud, that empty fear and quiet pain come rushing back from the darker corners of my mind. For a long time, I'd been stupid enough to assume that I could handle everything on my own. That's vanity, though. Nobody can handle everything by themselves. Sometimes you need someone's help, even if that help is only giving you a little of their time and attention. Or bailing you out of jail. What's your friend Nelson in for? Reckless endangerment and aggravated assault, she took a breath and said. It's kind of a long story, but he's a sweet guy, Harry. There isn't a violent bone in his body. Which emphasized to me just how young Molly really was. There are violent bones in everyone's body, if you look deep enough. About 206 of them. What about your dad? He saves people all the time. Molly hesitated for a second, and her cheeks turned pink. Um, my parents don't like Nelson very much. Especially my dad. Ah, I said. Nelson's that kind of friend. Things started adding up. I asked the loaded question, Why is it so important for him to get out tonight? Wait for it. Molly let go of my wrist. Because he might be in danger. The weird kind of danger. He needs your help. And there it was. Sometimes... It's almost as though I'm psychic. Chapter 9 Boyfriend Nelson had been arraigned two hours before. His bail had been set at enough money to make me glad that over the past year I had made it a habit to keep a chunk of cash around just in case I needed it in a hurry. I got the fisheye from a hard-faced office matron as I counted it out in twenties. She counted it too. Thank you, I said. It's a wonderful feeling to be trusted. She did not look amused. She pushed some papers at me. Sign here, please. And here. I signed while Molly hovered nervously in the background, holding Mouse's leash. Then we sat down and waited. Molly fidgeted until they brought her honey bunny out to sign the last couple of papers before being released. Boyfriend Nelson wasn't what I'd expected. He was an inch or two taller than Molly, he had a long, narrow face, and I would have hesitated to touch his cheekbones for fear of slicing my fingers on them. He was thin, but it was that kind of lean, whipcord thinness rather than anything that would denote frailty. He moved well, and I pegged him as a fencer or a martial artist of some other kind. Dark hair fell around his head in an even mop. He wore square-shaped silver-rimmed spectacles, chinos, and a black t-shirt with another splatter-con exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, logo on it. He looked tired and needed to shave. The second he was free, he hurried over to Molly and they hugged, speaking quietly to one another. I didn't listen in. It didn't seem right to invade their privacy. Besides, body language told me enough. The hug went on a second or two longer than Molly wanted it to. Then, when Nelson bent his head down to kiss her, she gave him a sweet smile, turning her cheek to meet his lips. After that, he got the point. He bit his lower lip a little and stepped back from her, rubbing his hands on his pants, as if unsure what else to do with them. Save me from awkward relationship melodrama, I muttered to Mouse under my breath, and got onto a payphone to call a cab. 
Being a learned wizardly type, I had, of course, discovered the cure for tangling up an otherwise orderly life with relationship issues. Don't have a relationship. It was better that way. If I repeated it to myself often enough, I almost believed it. Molly and boyfriend Nelson walked over to me a minute later. Nelson didn't look up at me when he offered me his hand. Uh, I guess thank you. I shook his hand and squeezed hard enough to hurt a little. Me annoyed alpha male. <clears throat> How could I refuse such a polite and straightforward request for help? I took Mouse's leash from Molly, who looked away, turning pink again. I don't want to seem ungrateful, Nelson said, but I have to get moving now. No, you don't, I said. His weight had already shifted to move into his first step, and he blinked at me. Excuse me? I just got you out of a cage. Now comes the part where you tell me what happened to you. Then you can go. His eyes narrowed, and his weight shifted again, centering his balance. Definitely a student of martial arts. Are you threatening me? I'm telling you how it's going to be, kid. So talk. And if I don't? He demanded. I shrugged. If you don't, maybe I'll knock your block off. I'd like to see you try, he said, more anger in his voice. Suit yourself, I said. But we're inside of the cop at the entry desk. He probably won't see who threw the first punch. You just got out on bail. You'll go back, probably for assault, committed within two minutes of being freed. There isn't a judge in town who would grant you bail again. I saw him think about it furiously, which impressed me. A lot of men his age, when angry, wouldn't bother with actual thought. Then he shook his head. You're bluffing. You'd be arrested, too. Hell's bells, kid, I said. When did you fall off the turnip truck? They'll interview me. I'll tell them you threw the first punch. Who do you think they're going to believe? I'll be out in an hour. Nelson's knuckles popped as he clenched his fists. He stared at me, and then at the building behind him. Nelson, Molly urged quietly, he's trying to help you. He's got a hell of a way of showing it, Nelson spat. Just balancing the scales a bit, I said, glancing at Molly. Then I sighed. Nelson was holding on to his pride. He didn't want to back down in front of Molly. Insecurity. My name is Teenager. It wouldn't kill me to help Nelson save face. Come on, kid. Give me five minutes to talk to you, and I'll pay your fare back to wherever you're heading. I'll throw in some fast food. Nelson's stomach made a gurgling sound, and he licked his lips, glancing aside at Molly. The wary focus slid out of his posture, and he nodded, brushing his hand back through his hair. He let out a long exhale and said, Sorry, just been a bad day. I had one of those once, I said. So, talk. How'd you wind up in jail? He shook his head. I'm not sure what actually happened. I was in the bathroom, and I held up my hand, interrupting him with a gesture. Eat your heart out, Merlin. What bathroom? Where? At the convention, he said. Convention? I asked. Splattercon, Molly offered. She waved a hand at her button and at Nelson's shirt. It's a horror movie convention. There's a convention for that? There's a convention for everything, Nelson said. This one screens horror movies, invites in directors, special effects guys, actors, authors, too. There are discussion panels, costume contests, vendors, 
fans show up to the convention to get together and meet the industry guests, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You're a fan, then. Staff, he said. I'm supposed to be in charge of security. Okay, I said. Get back to the bathroom. Right, he said. Well, I'd had a lot of coffee and potato chips and pretzels and stuff, so I was just sitting in there with the stall door closed. What happened? I heard someone come in, Nelson said. The door was really squeaky. He licked his lips nervously. And then he started screaming. I arched an eyebrow. Who? Clark Pell, he said. He owns the old movie theater next to the hotel. We rented it out for the weekend so we could play our favorites on the big screen. Nice old guy. Always supports the convention. Why was he screaming? Nelson hesitated for a second, clearly uncomfortable. He... You have to understand that I didn't actually see anything. Sure, I said. It sounded like a fight. Scuffling sounds. I uh, heard him let out a noise, right? Like someone had startled him. He shook his head. That's when he started screaming. What happened? I jumped up to help him, but his cheeks turned red. Y you know, I was kind of in the middle of something. It took me a second to get out of the stall. And? And Mr. Pell was there, he said. He was unconscious and bleeding. Not real bad, but he looked like he'd taken a real pounding. Broken nose, maybe his jaw, too. They took him to the hospital. I frowned. Could someone have slipped in or out? No, Nelson said, and his voice was confident on that point. That damn door all but screams every time it swings. Could someone have come in at the same time as Pell, I asked. Maybe, he said, on the same opening of the door, but... I know, I said, but they would have had to open the door to leave. I rubbed at my chin. Could someone have held the door open? The hall was crowded. You could hear the people when the door was open, Nelson said, and there was a cop standing right outside. He was the first one in, in fact. I grunted, and with no other obvious suspects, they blamed you. Nelson nodded. Yes. I mused for a moment and then said, What do you think happened? He shook his head several times and very firmly. I don't know. Someone must have gotten in and out somehow. Maybe there's an air vent or something. Yeah, I said. Maybe that's it. Nelson checked his watch and swallowed. Oh, God, I gotta get to the airport. I'm supposed to meet Darby in 30 minutes and take him to the hotel. Darby? I asked. Darby Crane, Molly supplied. Producer and director of horror films. Guest of honor at SplatterCon. He do any work I might have seen? I asked. Molly nodded. Maybe. Uh, did you ever see Harvest? The one with the scarecrow? Uh, I said thinking. Where it smashes through the wall of the convent and eats the nuns. And the librarian sets it on fire and burns down the library and himself with it. That's the one, <laughs> I said. Not bad, but I'll take a Corman flick any day. Excuse me, Nelson said, but I really need to get moving. As he spoke, the cab I'd called pulled up to the curb. I checked and found my shadowy tail still outside, patient and motionless. Mouse let out another almost subaudible growl. My shadow wasn't exactly going out of his way not to be noticed, which meant that he almost certainly wasn't a hitman. A hired gun would do everything he could to stay invisible, preferably until several hours after I was cold and dead. Of course, he could be trying reverse psychology, I supposed. 
but that kind of circular reasoning could trigger a paranoiagasm and drive me loopy fast. Odds were good that he was just supposed to keep an eye on me, whoever he was. Better than to keep him in sight rather than trying to shake him. I was happier knowing where he was than worrying about him being out of sight. I'd play it cool, give him a while to see if I could figure out what he was up to. I nodded to myself and strode out to the curb, mouse at my side. Okay, kids, I called over my shoulder. Get in the cab. Mouse and I took the back seat. Molly didn't give Nelson a chance to choose. She got into the passenger seat in front, and boyfriend Nelson settled into the back seat beside me. Which? I asked him. O'Hare. I told the driver, and we took off for the airport. I watched my shadow in vague reflections in the windows. The car's lights came on and followed us all the way out to O'Hare. We got Nelson there in time to meet his B-movie mogul, and he all but leapt from the car. Molly opened her door to follow him. Wait, I said, not you. She shot me a glance over her shoulder, frowning. What? Nelson's out of jail, and he's talked to me about what happened, and he's in time to meet Darby Crane. I think I pretty much lived up to what I said I would do. She frowned prettily. Yes. So? So now it's your turn. Close the door. She shook her head. Harry, don't you see that he's in some kind of trouble? And he doesn't believe in... She glanced at the cabbie and back to me. You know? Well, maybe he is, I said. Maybe not. I'm going to get over to the convention tonight and see if there's anything supernatural about the assault on Mr. Pell, right after we get done talking to your parents. Molly blanched. What? We had a deal, I said. And in my judgment, Molly, we need to go see them. But, she sputtered, it isn't as though I need them to bail me out or anything. You should have thought about that before you made the deal, I said. I'm not going there, she said, and folded her arms. I don't want to. I felt cold stone flow into the features of my face, into the timbre of my voice. Miss Carpenter, is there any doubt in your mind, any at all, that I could take you there regardless of what you really want to do? The change in tone hit her hard. She blinked at me in surprise for a second, lips parted but empty of sound. I'm taking you to see them, I said. Because it's the smart thing to do, the legal thing to do, the right thing to do. You agreed to it, and by the stars and stones, if you try to weasel out on me, I'll wrap you in duct tape, box you up, and send you UPS. She stared at me in utter shock. I'm not your mom or your dad, Molly, and these days I'm not a very nice person. You've already abused my friendship tonight and diverted my attention from work that could have saved lives. People who really need my help might get hurt or die because of this stupid stunt. I leaned closer, staring coldly, and she leaned away, declining to make eye contact. Now buckle the fuck up. She did. I gave the cabbie the address and closed my eyes. I hadn't seen Michael in nearly two years. I regretted that. Of course, not seeing Michael meant not seeing Charity either, which I did not regret. And now I was going to drive up in a cab with their daughter. Charity was going to like that almost as much as I like cleaning up after Mouse on our walks. 
In her eyes, my mere presence near her daughter would make me guilty of uncounted, if imaginary, transgressions. The angelic sigil on my left palm burned and itched furiously. I poked at it through the leather glove, but it didn't help. I'd have to keep the glove on. If Michael saw the sigil, or if he somehow sensed the shadow of Lashiel running around in my head, he might react in a manner similar to his wife's. And that didn't take into consideration a father's desire to protect his physically mature daughter from any would-be, uh, invaders. I predicted fireworks of one kind or another. Fun, fun, fun. Should I survive the conversation, I would then be off to a horror convention where a supernatural assault might or might not have happened with a mysterious stranger following me while an unknown would-be assassin ran around loose somewhere, probably practicing his offensive driving skills so that he could polish me off the next time he saw me. Let the good times roll. Chapter 10 I told the cabbie to keep the meter running and headed for the carpenter's front door. Molly remained cool, distant, and untouchably silent all the way over the small lawn. She walked calmly up the steps to the porch. She faced the door calmly, and then broke out into a sweat the moment I rang the bell. Nice to know I wasn't the only one. I wasn't looking forward to speaking with Michael. As long as I kept the conversation brief and didn't get too close to him, he might not sense the presence of the demon inside me. Things might work out. My already sore head twinged a little more. Beside me, Molly rolled her shoulders in a few jerky motions and pushed at her hair in fitful little gestures. She tugged at her well-tattered skirts and grimaced at her boots. Can you see if there's any mud on them? I paused to consider her for a second. Then I said, You have two tattoos showing right now, and you probably used a fake ID to get them. Your piercings would set off any metal detector worth the name, and you're featuring them in parts of your anatomy your parents wish you didn't yet realize you had. You're dressed like Frankenhooker, and your hair has been dyed colors I previously thought existed only in cotton candy. I turned to face the door again. I wouldn't waste time worrying about a little mud on the boots. In the corner of my eye, Molly swallowed nervously, staring at me until the door opened. Molly! shrieked a little girl's voice. There was a blur of pink cotton pajamas, a happy squeal, and then Molly caught one of her little sisters in her arms in a mutual hug. Hiya, hobbit, Molly said, catching the girl by an ankle and dangling her in the air. This elicited screams of delight from the girl. Molly swung her upright again. How have you been? Daniel is the boss kid now, but he isn't as good as you, the girl said. He yells lots more. Why is your hair blue? Hey, I said, it's pink, too. The girl, a golden-haired moppet of six or seven, noticed me for the first time and promptly buried her face against Molly's neck. You remember Hope, Molly said. Say hello to Mr. Dresden. My name is Hobbit, the little girl declared boldly, then lowered her face into the curve of Molly's neck and hid from me. Meanwhile, the house erupted with thudding feet and more shouts. Lights started flicking on upstairs, and the stairwell shuddered as brothers and sisters pounded down it and ran for the front door. Another pair of girls made it there first, both of them older than Hope. They both assaulted Molly with shrieks and flying hugs. Bill, the smaller of the pair, greeted me afterward. You came back to visit. 
My name is Harry, actually, I said, and I remember you. Amanda, right? I'm Amanda, she allowed cautiously. But we already have a Harry. That's why you're Bill. And this is Alicia, Molly said of the other, a child as gawky and skinny as Molly had been when I first met her. Her hair was darker than the others, trimmed short, and she wore black-rimmed glasses over a serious expression. She's the next oldest girl. You remember Mr. Dresden, don't you, Leech? Don't call me Leech, she said in the patient tone of someone who has said something a million times and plans on saying it a million times more. Hello, sir, she told me. Alicia, I said, nodding. Evidently, the use of her actual name constituted a gesture of partisanship. She gave me a somewhat relieved and conspiratorial smile. A pair of boys showed up. The older might have been almost ready to take a driver's test. The next was balanced precariously between grade school and pimples. Both had Michael's dark hair and solid, sober expression. The younger boy almost threw himself at Molly upon seeing her, but restrained himself to a hello and a hug. The older boy only folded his arms and frowned. My brother Matthew, Molly said of the younger. I nodded at him. Where have you been? The older boy said. He stood there frowning at Molly for a moment. Nice to see you too, Daniel, she replied. You know Mr. Dresden? He gave me a nod, said to Molly. I'm not kidding. You just took off. Do you have any idea of how much it messed things up here? Molly's mouth firmed into a line. You didn't think I was going to just hang around here forever, did you? Is it Halloween wherever it is you live? Daniel demanded. Look at you. Mom's going to freak out. Molly stepped forward and half-tossed Hope into Daniel's chest. When does she do anything else? Shouldn't these two be in bed? Daniel grimaced as he caught Hope and said, That's what I was trying to do before someone interrupted bedtime. He took Amanda's hand and over half-hearted protests took the two youngest girls back into the house. There was a creak from the upstairs of the house, and Alicia thumped Matthew firmly with her elbow. The two vanished as heavy steps descended from the second floor. Michael Carpenter was almost as tall as me and packed a lot more muscle. He had the kind of face that told anyone who looked that he was a man of honesty and kindness, who nonetheless could probably kick the crap out of you if you offered him violence. I wasn't sure how he managed that. Something about the strength of his jawline, maybe, bespoke the steady power of both body and mind. But as for the kindness, that went all the way down to his soul. You could see it in the warmth of his gray eyes. He wore khaki pants and a light blue T-shirt, a hard-cased plastic cylinder, doubtless the one he used to transport his sword, hung from a strap over one shoulder. An overnight bag hung over the other, and his hair was damp from the shower. He came down the stairs at a pace of a man with places to be, until he looked up and saw Molly and me standing in the doorway. He froze in place, a smile of surprised delight illuminating his face as he saw Molly. The overnight bag thumped to the floor as he strode forward and crushed his oldest daughter to his chest in a hug. Daddy, she protested. Hush, he told her. Let me hug you. Her eyes flickered to the case still held against one shoulder, and her expression became tainted with a sudden worry. When are you going? You just caught me, he said. I'm glad. 
She hugged her father back and closed her eyes. It's just a visit, she said. He rose from the hug a moment later, studying her face, worry in his eyes. Then he nodded, smiled, and said, I'm glad anyway. He jerked his head back a moment later, as if the rest of her appearance had only then registered on him, and his eyes widened. Margaret Catherine Amanda Carpenter, he said, his voice hushed. God's blood, what have you done to your... He looked her up and down, gentle dismay on his face. Your... Self, I suggested. Yourself. Yourself, Michael sighed. He looked Molly up and down again. She was doing that thing where she tried to display how much she didn't care what her daddy thought of her look, and it was almost painfully obvious that she cared a great deal. Tattoos. The hair wasn't so bad, but... He shook his head and offered me his hand. Tell me, Harry, am I just too old? I didn't want to shake Michael's hand. Lashiel's presence in me, even if it wasn't the full-blown version, wasn't something he would miss, not if he made actual physical contact with me. For a couple of years I had been avoiding him with every excuse I had, hoping I could take care of my little demon issue without bothering him about it. More accurately, I supposed... I had been too ashamed to let him see what had happened. Michael was probably the most honest, decent human being I had ever had the privilege to know. He had always thought well of me. It had been something that had given me comfort in a low spot or two, and I hated the thought of losing his trust and friendship. Lashiel's presence, the collaboration of a literal fallen angel, would destroy that. But friendship isn't a one-way street. I had brought his daughter back because I had thought it was the right thing to do, and because I thought he'd do the same for someone else in a similar circumstance. I respected him enough to do that, and I respected him too much to lie to him. I had avoided the confrontation long enough. I shook his hand, and nothing in his manner or expression changed, not announced. He hadn't sensed Lashiel's presence or Mark. Well he asked, smiling. If you think she looks silly, you're too old, I said after a moment. I'm moderately ancient by the standards of the younger generation, and I think she only looks a little over the top. Molly rolled her eyes at us both, her cheeks pink. I suppose a good Christian should be willing to turn the other cheek when it comes to matters of fashion, Michael said. Let he who hath never stonewashed his jeans cast the first stone, I said, nodding. Michael laughed and gripped my shoulder briefly. <laughs> it's good to see you, Harry. And you, I said, trying a smile. I glanced at the plastic case on his shoulder. Business trip? Yes, he said. Where to? He smiled. I'll know when I get there. I shook my head. Michael was entrusted to wield one of the blades of the Knights of the Cross. He was one of only two men in the world who were entrusted with such potent weapons against dark powers. As such, he had a lot of planet to cover. I wasn't clear exactly how his itinerary was established, but he was often called away from his home and family, apparently summoned to where his strength was most needed. I don't go in big for religion, but I believe in the Almighty. I had seen a vast power at work supporting Michael's actions. 
Coincidence seemed to go to insane lengths at times to make sure he was where he needed to be to help someone in trouble. I had seen that power strike down seriously twisted foes without Michael so much as raising his voice. That power, that faith, had carried him through dangers and battles he had no business surviving, much less winning. But I had never thought too much about how hard it must be for him to leave his home when the archangels or God or whoever sent up a flare and called him off to a crisis. I glanced aside at Molly. She was smiling, but I could see the strain and worry beneath the surface. Hard on his family, too. Haven't you left? called a woman's voice from upstairs. The house creaked again, and Michael's wife appeared at the top of the stairway, saying, You'll be... Her voice cut off suddenly. I hadn't ever seen Charity in a red silk kimono before. Like Michael, her hair was damp from the shower. Even wet, it still looked blonde. Charity had nice legs. Clearly defined muscles in her calves shifting as she stepped to the head of the stairs. And what I could see of the rest of her looked much the same. Strong, fit, healthy. She bore a sleeping child on one hip. My namesake, Harry, the youngest of the bunch. His arms and legs splayed in perfect relaxation, and his head was pillowed on her shoulder. His cheeks were pink with that look very young children get while sleeping. Blue eyes widened in utter surprise, and for just a moment she froze, staring at Molly. She opened her mouth for a second, words hesitating on her tongue. Then her eyes shifted to me, and surprise fell to recognition which was followed by a melange of anger, worry, and fear. She clutched her kimono a little more tightly to her, her mouth working for a second more, then said, Excuse me for a moment. She vanished and reappeared a moment later, sans little Harry, this time covered in a long terrycloth bathrobe, her feet inside fuzzy slippers. Molly, she said quietly, and came down the stairs. The girl averted her eyes. Mother? And the wizard, she said, her mouth hardening into a line. Of course he's here. She tilted her head to one side, her expression hardening further. Is this who you've been with, Molly? The air pressure in the room quadrupled, and Molly's face darkened from pink to scarlet. So what if it is, she demanded, defiance making the words ring. That's no business of yours. I opened my mouth to assure Charity that I had nothing to do with anything, not that it would actually alter the nature of the conversation, but Michael glanced at me and shook his head. I zipped my lips and awaited developments. Wrong, Charity said, her stance belligerent and unyielding. You are a child and I am your mother. It is precisely my business. But it's my life. Molly replied, which you clearly lack the discipline and intelligence to manage. Here we go again, Molly said. Go, go, gadget control freak. Do not take that tone of voice with me, young lady. Young lady? Molly sing-songed back in a nasal impersonation of her mother's voice, her fists now on her hips. What's the point? Stupid of me to think that you might actually be willing to talk with me instead of telling me how to live every second of my life. I fail to see the error in that when you clearly have no idea what you are doing, young lady. Look at you. You look like... like a savage. 
My mouth went off on reflex. Ah, yes, a savage, of the famous chromotonsorial Cahokian goth tribe, Michael winced. The look Charity turned on me could have withered the life from small animals and turned potted flowers black. Excuse me, Mr. Dresden, she said, words clipped. I do not recall speaking to you. Beg pardon, I said, and gave her my sweetest smile. Don't mind me, just thinking out loud. Molly turned to glare at me, too, but hers was a pale imitation of her mother's. I do not need you to defend me. Charity's attention shifted back to her daughter. You will not speak to an adult in that tone of voice so long as you are in this house, young lady. Not a problem, Molly shot back, and then she whirled on her heel and opened the door. Michael put his hand out, not with any particular effort, and the door slammed shut again with a sharp, booming impact. Sudden silence fell over the carpenter household. Both Molly and Charity stared at Michael with expressions of utter shock. Michael took a deep breath and then said, Ladies, I try not to involve myself in these discussions, but obviously your conversation this evening is unlikely to resolve the differences you've had. He looked at them in turn, and his voice, while still gentle, became something more immovable than a mountain's bones. I don't have any feeling that my trip will be an extended one, he said. But we never know what he has planned for us, or how much time is left to any of us. This house has been upset long enough. The strife is hurting everyone. Find a way to resolve your troubles before I return. But, Molly began, Molly, Michael said, his tone of voice inexorable, she is your mother. She deserves your respect and courtesy. You will give them to her for the length of a conversation. Molly set her jaw, but looked away from her father. He stared at her for a moment until she gave him a brief nod. Thank you he said. I want you both to make an effort to set the anger aside and talk. By God, ladies, I will not go forth to answer the call, only to come home to more conflict and strife. I get enough of that while I'm gone. Charity stared at him for a second longer and then said, But Michael, surely you aren't going to leave now. Not when, she gestured vaguely at me, there will be trouble. Michael stepped over to his wife and kissed her gently. Then he said, Faith, my love. She closed her eyes and looked away from him after the kiss. Are you sure? I'm needed, he said with quiet certainty. He touched her face with one hand and said, Harry, would you walk me to the car? I did. Thank you, I said once we were outside. I'm glad to get out of there. Tension, knife. Michael nodded. It's been a long year. What happened to them? I asked. Michael tossed his case and his bag into the back of his white pickup truck. Molly was arrested. Possession. I blinked at him. She was possessed? He sighed and looked at me. Possession, marijuana, and ecstasy. She was at a party and the police raided it. She was caught holding them. Wow. I said, my voice subdued. What happened? Community service, he said. 
We talked about it. She was clearly repentant. I thought that the humiliation and the sentence of the law were enough to settle matters. But Charity thought we were being too gentle. She tried to restrict which people Molly was allowed to spend time with. I winced. Ah, I think I can see how this played out. Michael nodded, got into his truck, and leaned on the open window, looking up at me. Yes, both of them are proud and stubborn. Friction rose until it exploded this spring. Molly left home, dropped out of school. It's been difficult. I can see that, I said, and sighed. Maybe you should pitch in with Charity. Maybe the two of you could sit on her until she gets back on the straight and narrow. Michael smiled a little. She's Charity's daughter. A hundred parents sitting on her couldn't make her surrender. He shook his head. A parent's authority can only go so far. Molly has to start thinking and choosing for herself. At this point, twisting her arm until she cries uncle isn't going to help her do that. Doesn't seem like Charity agrees with you, I said. Michael nodded. She loves Molly very much. She's terrified of the kinds of things that could happen to her little girl. He glanced at the house. Which brings me to a question for you. Yeah? Is there some kind of dangerous situation developing? I chewed on my lip and then nodded. It seems probable, but I don't have anything specific yet. Is my daughter involved in it? Not to my knowledge, I told him. Her boyfriend got arrested tonight. She talked me into bailing him out. Michael's eyes narrowed a little, but then he caught himself, and I saw him force the angry expression from his face. I see. How in the world did you get her to come here? It was what I charged for my help, I said. She tried to back out, but I convinced her not to. Michael grunted. You threatened her? Politely, I said. I'd never hurt her. I know that. Michael said, his tone gently reproving. Behind us, the front door opened. Molly stepped out onto the porch, hugging herself with her arms. She stood that way for a moment, ignoring us. A few seconds later, a light on the second floor came on. Charity, presumably, had gone back upstairs. Michael watched his daughter for a moment, pain in his eyes. Then he took a deep breath and said, May I ask a favor of you? Yes. Talk to her, Michael said. She likes you, respects you. A few words from you might do more than anything I could tell her right now. Uh, whoa, I said, I don't know. You don't have to negotiate a treaty, Michael said, smiling. Just ask her to talk to her mother, to be willing to give a little. Compromise has to work both ways, I said. What about Charity? She'll come around. Am I the only one who has noticed that Charity really doesn't regard me with what most of the world thinks of as fairness? Or fondness? I am the last person in the world likely to get her to sit down for a reconciliation talk. He smiled. Have a little faith. Oh, please, I sighed. But there wasn't any real feeling behind it. Will you try to help? Michael asked. I scowled at him. Yes. He smiled at me mostly in his eyes. Thank you. I'm sorry you walked into the crossfire tonight. Molly told me there had been trouble at home. Bringing her here seemed like the right thing to do. I appreciate it. Michael frowned, his eyes distant for a moment, and said, 
I've got to get moving. Sure, I said. He met my eyes and said, If something arises, will you keep an eye on them for me? It would make me feel a lot better to know you were watching over them until I return. I glanced back at his house. What happened to having faith? He smiled. Seems a bit lazy to expect the Lord to do all the work, doesn't it? His expression grew serious again. Besides, I do have faith, Harry. In him. And in you. Demon-infested me writhed in uncomfortable guilt on the inside. I'll keep an eye on them, of course. Thank you, Michael said, and put the truck in gear. When I get back, I need to talk business with you, if you have the time. I nodded. Sure, good hunting. God be with you, he replied with a deep nod, and then he pulled out and left. Have sword, will travel. Hi-o, silver, away. Get Molly and Charity to sit down and talk things out. Right. I had about as much chance to do that as I did of backpacking my car to the top of Mount Rushmore. I was gloomily certain that even if I did manage to get them together, it would only make things go more spectacularly wrong once they were there. The whole house would probably go up in an explosion when Mother met Anti-Mother. No good could come of this one. Why in the world had I agreed to it? Because Michael was my friend. And because I was, in general, too stupid to turn down people in need. And maybe because of something more. Michael's house had always been full of hectic life. But it had been a place, in general, of talk and warmth and laughter and good food. The ugly shouts and snarls of Molly and Charity's quarrel had stained the place. They didn't belong there. I had never had a home like that growing up. Even now that Thomas and I had found one another, when I thought of a family, I thought of the Carpenter household. I had never had that kind of intimacy, closeness. Those who have such a family seldom realize how rare and precious it is. It was something worth preserving. I wanted to help. And Michael had a point. I might have a chance to get through to Molly. That was only half the battle, so to speak, but it was probably more than he could manage from his own position. But whatever higher power arranged these things had a demented sense of timing, given how much I had on my plate already. Hell's bells. Molly came over to me after Michael's truck had vanished. She stood beside me in the quiet summer evening, silent. I guess you need a ride back to your place, I said. I don't have any money, she replied quietly. Okay, I said. Where do you need to go? The convention, she replied. I have friends there, a room for the weekend. She glanced over her shoulder at the house. The Rugrats seem glad to see you, I observed. She smiled fleetingly and her voice warmed. I didn't realize how much I missed them. Dumb little Jawas. I thought about nudging her toward her mother for a second, then decided against it. She might decide to do it if she wasn't pressured, but the second she thought I was trying to force her into something, she'd dig in her heels. So all I said was, They're cute kids. Yes, she replied quietly. I'm heading for the convention anyway, I told her. Get in the cab. Thank you, she said. You're welcome, I said.
Chapter 11 When people say the word convention, they are usually referring to large gatherings of the employees of companies and corporations who attend a mass assembly, usually in a big hotel somewhere, for the purpose of pretending to learn stuff when they're in fact enjoying a free trip somewhere, time off work, and the opportunity to flirt with strangers, drink, and otherwise indulge themselves. The first major difference between a business convention and a fandom convention is that fandom doesn't bother with the pretenses. They're just there to have a good time. The second difference is the dress code. The ensembles at a fan convention tend to be considerably more novel. Splattercon! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Apparently the name of the con was misspelled if the three exclamation points were left out had populated the hotel with all kinds of costumed fans, unless maybe the costumes were actually clothing trends. Once in a while it gets hard to tell make-believe and avant-garde fashion apart. The hotel had an entry atrium, which in turn branched off into a pair of long, wide hallways, leading to combination ball and dining rooms, the ones with those long folding partitions that can be used to break the larger rooms up into smaller halls for seminars and talk panels and so on. There were a couple of hundred people in sight, and I could see more entering and leaving various panel rooms. I kind of expected a few more people to be here, I said to Molly. I had stopped at my apartment to grab my stuff and drop off Mouse. It's Thursday night, she said, as if that should be significant. And it's getting late, at least for a weeknight. We have more than 3,000 people already registered. Is that a lot? For a first-year convention? It's a Mongol horde. There was pride in her voice as she spoke. And we have a really young staff to boot, but old hands are putting conventions together. She went on like that for a few moments, naming names and citing their experience, as though she expected me to whip out a licensing manual or something to make sure the convention was up to code. Two girls, both too young for me to think adult thoughts about, sidled by in black and purple clothing and makeup that left a lot of skin bare, their faces painted pale, trickles of fake blood at the corners of their mouths. One of them smiled at me, and she had fangs. I had my hand on my staff, and the harsh, clear scent of wood smoke filled my nose before I stopped myself from unleashing an instant, violent, and noisily pyrotechnic assault upon the vampire five feet from me. A second study showed irregular lumps and finger marks on the teeth. The girls had probably made them with their own fingers from craft plastic. I let out my breath in a steady exhalation and relaxed again releasing the power I'd begun to channel through my staff. Relax, Harry. Hell's bells. That would be a great story for the papers. Professional wizard incinerates amateur vampire. News at ten. The two girls went on by, none the wiser, and even Molly only frowned at them and then back at me for a second, her face tilted into an expression of silent inquiry. I shook my head. Sorry, sorry, been a long day already. Look, I need to get a look at the bathroom where this theater owner was attacked. All right, Molly said. But first, we'll get you a name tag at registration. We will, I asked. Why? Because you're not supposed to have access to the convention if you haven't registered for it, she said. Con security and hotel security might get confused. It would be inconvenient for you. Right, I said. Good thinking. I'm not sure how I'd react to inconvenience. I followed her over to a set of tables set up to receive dozens or hundreds of people at once, each designated with white paper signs marked with A through D, E through J, and so on, down the alphabet. 
A tired-looking, brown-haired woman of early middle age sat behind the first table, doing some kind of paperwork. Molly, she said, and her voice warmed with tired but genuine pleasure. Who is your friend? Harry Dresden, Molly said. This is Sandra Marling. She's the convention chair. You're a horror fan? Sandra Marling asked me. My life is all about horror these days. You should find plenty here to entertain you, she assured me. We're showing movies in several rooms, as well as in the theater. And there's the vendor's room, and some autograph signings tomorrow. And, of course, there are several parties active already. And the costume contests are always fun to watch. Isn't that something, I said, and tried not to drown in my enthusiasm. Sandy, Molly said, stepping in. I want to use my freebie for Harry here. Sandra nodded. Oh, Rosanna was looking for you a few minutes ago. Have you spoken to her yet? Not since this afternoon, Molly said and fretted at her lower lip. Did she remember to take her vitamins? Rest easy, girl. I reminded her for you. Molly looked visibly relieved. Thank you. Sandra, meanwhile, had me filling out a registration form, which I scribbled through fairly quickly. At the end, she passed me a plastic badge folded around a card that said, SplatterCon, hi, I'm... She gave me a black ink marker to go with it and said, Sorry, the printer's been offline all day. Just write your name in. I promptly wrote the words, An Innocent Bystander, onto the name tag, before folding it up into the plastic badge and pinning it to my shirt. I hope you enjoy SplatterCon, Harry, Sandra said. I picked up a schedule and glanced at it. Make your own blood and custom fangs, to be followed by How to Scream Like a Pro. I don't see how I can avoid being entertained. Molly gave me a level look as we walked away. You don't have to make fun of it. Actually, I do, I said. I make fun of almost everything. It's mean, she said. Sandra has poured her whole life into this convention for a year, and I don't want to see her feelings hurt. Where do you know her from, I asked. Not church, I guess. Molly looked at me obliquely for a second and then said, She's a part-time volunteer at one of the shelters where I'm doing community service. She helped Nelson out when he was younger, Rosie too, and her boyfriend. I lifted a hand in acquiescence. Fine, fine, I'll play nice. Thank you, she said, her voice still prim. It's very adult of you. I started to get annoyed, but was struck by the disturbing thought that if I did, I would be coming down on the same side of the situation as charity, which might be one of the signs of the apocalypse. Molly led me down to the end of one of the long conference room hallways, where there were the usual restroom doors. One of them had been marked over with three bars of police tape, shutting it, and a uniformed cop sat in a chair beside the door. The cop was a large black man, gray in his hair at the temples, and he sat with the chair leaned on its rear two legs so that his head rested back against the wall. He had on his uniform, but had added on a splattercon name tag, he had filled in the name on the card with the marker, too, though his blocky script under the Hi, I'm read An Authority Figure. The uniform name stripe on his shirt read Rollins. Well, now, the cop said as I walked over to him. He opened his mostly closed eyes and gave me a wary smile. He read my name tag and snorted. It's the consultant guy. Thinks he's a wizard. Rollins, I said, smiling, and offered him my hand. He took it, his grip lazily strong. So you're one of those horror movie fans, huh? He rumbled. Uh, yes, I said. He snorted again. 
I was sort of hoping I could get into the bathroom there. Rawlins pursed his lips. There's two more on this floor. One's back near the front desk, and there's another at the end of the other conference hall. I like this one, I said. Rollins squinted at me and said, Maybe you can't read so good. You see that tape there? It says crime scene and such? The bright yellow and black stuff? I asked. That's it exactly. Yep. Well, that's what we police use when we have a crime scene, and we don't want nosy private investigators stomping all over it in the big boots and contaminating everything, he drawled. What if I promise to walk on tippy-toe? Then I promise I'll stop bouncing you off the walls just as soon as I think you're not resisting arrest, he said in a cheerful tone. The smile faded a little, and his eyes hardened. It's a crime scene. No. Molly, I said quietly, would you mind if I talk to the officer alone? Sure, she said. There are things I need to handle anyway. Excuse me. She walked away without looking back. Do you mind talking about it? I asked Rollins. Nah, he said. Look, you seem okay, Dresden. I'll talk, but I'm not letting you in there. Why not? I asked. Because it might make things harder on the kid we took in for it. I frowned and tilted my head. Yeah? Rollins nodded. Kid didn't do it, he said. But hotel security cameras show him going in there, then the victim, and no one else. And I was sitting right here in this spot the whole time. I'm sure no one else went in or out. So how do you know the kid didn't attack the old man, I asked. Rollins gave an easy shrug. Didn't fit him. He wasn't breathing hard, and given a beating runs you out of breath quick. No damage to his hands or knuckles, no blood on him. So why'd you arrest him, I asked. Because the record shows that there's no one else who could have done it, Rollins said. And because the old man was too out of it to talk and clear him. Kid didn't beat on the old man. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't in with whoever did. I figured maybe he knows how the attacker got in and out unseen, so I took him down and booked him. I figured if he was an accomplice, he'd spill rather than take the whole fall himself, Rollins grimaced. But he didn't spill. Didn't know a damn thing. Then why'd he get put away, I asked. Didn't know he had a record until the paperwork was already gone. Repeat offender got a real steep hill to climb as a suspect. Makes it look bad for him. He might take the fall on this even if he's innocent. I shook my head. You sure no one could have gone in or out? I was right here, he said. Anyone went past me without me noticing, they were a Jedi Knight or something. Or something, I muttered, glancing at the door. The girlfriend, Rollins said, nodding after the departed Molly. She get you involved in this? Daughter of a friend, I said, nodding. Bailed him out. Rollins grunted. Damn shame for that kid. I played it by the book, but he shook his head. Sometimes a book don't do enough. The girl thinks he's innocent, I said. The girl always thinks they're innocent, Dresden, Rollins said, without malice. Problem is, there's pretty good evidence that says he ain't. Good enough to send a repeat offender upstate. Unless the lab guys find something in there, or on the old man to clear him. Which brings us back to why you ain't going in. I nodded, frowning. What if I told you it might be something weird? He shrugged. What if you did? It might be something that I could recognize if I could just get a look at the room. I might be able to help the kid. He squinted at me. You think there's spooky afoot? 
I told the girl I'd look into it. Rawlins frowned, but then shook his head. Can't let you in there. Could I just look, I asked. You open the door, and I don't even go in. I just look. That couldn't hurt anything, could it? And you've already been in there. The EMTs, maybe a detective. Am I right? I couldn't contaminate it all that much just from looking in the door. Rawlins gave me a long, level stare, and then sighed. He grunted, and the front legs of his chair thunked down to the floor. He rose and said, All right, not one step inside. You're an officer and a gentleman, I told him. I used my elbow to nudge the restroom door open. It squealed ferociously. I leaned my head in, my chin just over the level of the top strip of tape, and looked around the bathroom. Standard stuff. A bathroom, white tile, stalls, urinals, sinks, a long mirror. The blood wasn't standard, of course. There was a large splotch of it on the floor, and it had been smeared around when it had been making the tile all slippery. There were a couple of different footmarks on the floor, outlined in blood, and more smears of it on one of the sinks, where the victim had apparently tried to pull himself up off the floor. It looked fairly gruesome, which wasn't really a surprise. There wasn't as much blood as there would have been at, say, a murder, but there was plenty all the same. Someone had laid into Clark Pell, the victim, with a will. I picked out small blood spatter on the mirror, high on the wall, and in a spot on the ceiling. Jesus, I muttered. It was an unarmed assault? No knives or anything? Rollins grunted. Old man had broken ribs, bruises, gashes from being slammed around. No cuts or stabs, though. No kid did this, I said. Wasn't a professional, either. Crowded spot like this? Witness in the bathroom? Cop twenty feet away? Dumbest thug in Chicago wouldn't open up that big a can of whoop-ass where he'd be seen and caught. Someone strong, I muttered, and really, really vicious. He had to have hit the old guy a few times after he went down. Rollins grunted again. Sound like anyone you know? I shook my head. I stared at the room for a second, and then chewed on my lower lip for a second, coming to a decision. I closed my eyes, clearing my thoughts. That's enough, Rollins said. Shut the door before people start to stare. One second, I murmured. Then, with an effort of focus and will, and a faint sense of illusory pressure on my forehead, I opened my wizard's sight. The sight is something anyone born with enough talent has. It's an extra sense, though when using it, almost everyone experiences it as a kind of augmented vision. It shows you the primal nature of things, the true and emotional core of what they are. It also shows you the presence of magical energies that course through pretty much everything on the planet, showing you how that energy flowed and pulsed and swirled through the world. The sight was especially useful for looking for any active magical constructs, that's spells for the newbie, and for cutting through illusions and spells meant to obfuscate what was true. I opened my sight, and it showed me what my physical eyes could not see about the room. It showed me something that, with as many bad things as I'd seen in my life, still made me clench my fists and fight to keep from losing control of my stomach. The sight of the attack, the blood, the brutality and pain inflicted upon the victim, 
had not been a simple matter of desire, conflict, and violence. It had been a deliberate, gleeful work of art. I could see patterns in the bloodstain, patterns that showed me the terrified face of an old man pounded into a lumpy, unrecognizable mass by sledgehammer fists, each one a miniature portrait painted in the medium of terror and pain. When I looked at the smears on the sink, I could hear a short series of grunts meant to be desperate cries for help. And then the old man was hurled back down for another round of splatter portraits of pain. And just for a second, I saw a shadow on the wall. A brief glimpse, a form, a shape. Something that left an outline of itself on the wall, where it had absorbed the agonized energy of the old man's suffering. I fought to push the sight away from my perceptions again and staggered. That was the drawback to using the sight. The sight could show you a lot of things, but everything you saw with it was there to stay. It wrote everything you perceived with it upon your memory in indelible ink, and those memories were always there, fresh and harsh when you went back to them, never blurring with the passage of time, never growing easier to endure. The little demonic diorama of bad vibes painted over the white tiles of that bathroom was going to make some appearances in my darker dreams. It looked like I'd found the black magic the gatekeeper warned me about. Just as well that I hadn't tried the dangerous spell with little Chicago. I took a couple of steps away, shaking away the flickers of color and sparkles of light on my vision that remained for a time when the sight was gone once more. Rollins had a hand under one of my elbows. You all right, man? He rumbled a moment later, his voice very quiet. Yeah, I said. Yeah, thanks. He looked from me to the closed door and back. What did you see in there? I'm not sure yet, I said. My voice sounded shaky. Something bad. Almost too quietly to be heard, he said. This wasn't just some thug, was it? My stomach twisted again. In my mind's eye, I could see a malicious smile reflected in the eyes of the old man, the memory absolutely crystalline. Maybe not, I mumbled. It could have been a person, I think. Someone really sick, or maybe not, I don't know. More words struggled to bubble out of my mouth, and I clamped my lips resolutely shut until I'd gotten my thoughts back under control. I looked around me and realized that the hairs on the back of my neck were not crawling around at the memory of the energy I just brushed. They were reacting to more of it drifting through the air, now, nearby. Rollins, I said, how many other cops are here? Just me now, he said quietly. He took a look at my face and then peered around, his heavy-lidded eyes deceptively alert, his hand on his gun. We got trouble? We got trouble, I said quietly, shifting my staff into my right hand. The lights went out, all of them at once, plunging the hotel into pure blackness. And the screaming started. Chapter 12 No more than two or three seconds went by before Rawlins had his flashlight out, and he flicked it on. The light flashed white and clean for maybe half a second, and then it dimmed down, 
as though some kind of greasy soot had coated it, until the light, though still bright, was so vague and veiled that it accomplished little more than to cast a faint glow to maybe an arm's length from Rollins. What the hell? he said, and shook the light a few times. He had his hand on his gun, the restraining strap off, but he hadn't drawn it yet. Good man. He knew as well as I did that the hotel was going to have far more panicked attendees than potential threats. We'll try mine, I said, and got the silver pentacle on its chain from around my neck. A gentle whisper and an effort of will, and the amulet began to emit a pure, silver-blue light that reached into the darkness around us, burning it away as swiftly as it pressed in, until we could see for maybe fifteen feet around us. Beyond that was just a murky vagueness, not so much a cloud or a mist as a simple lack of light. I gripped my staff in my right hand, and more of my will thrummed through it, setting the winding spirals of runes and sigils along its length to burning with a gentle ember-orange light. Rollins stared at me for a second and then said, What the hell is going on? There were running footsteps and shouts and cries in the gloom. All of them sounded choked, muffled somehow. One of the two teenaged vampires stumbled into the circle of my azure wizard's light, sobbing. Several young men blundered along a moment later, blindly, and all but trampled her. Rollins grabbed the girl with a grunt of, Excuse me, miss, and hauled her from their path. He lifted her more or less by main strength and pushed her gently against the wall. He forced her to look at him and said, Follow the wall that way to the door. Stay close to the wall until you get out. She nodded, tears making her makeup run in a mascara mudslide, and stumbled off, following Rollins's directions. Fire, Rollins blurted, turning back to me. Is this smoke? No, I said. Believe me, I know burning buildings. He gave me an odd look grabbed an older woman who was passing blindly and sent her off to follow the wall to the door out. He shivered then, and when he exhaled, his breath came out in a long, frosty plume. The temperature had dropped maybe forty degrees in the space of a minute. I struggled to ignore the sounds of frightened people in the dark and focused on my magical senses. I reached out to the cold and the gloom and found it a vaguely familiar kind of spell-working, though I couldn't remember precisely where I'd encountered it before. I spun in a slow circle with my eyes closed, and felt the murk grow deeper, darker, as I faced back down the hall to the hotel's front desk. I took a step that way, and the murk thickened marginally. The spell's source had to be that way. I gritted my teeth and started forward. Hey, Rollins said, where are you going? Are bad guys this way, I said. Or something is. Maybe you better stay here, help get these people outside safely. Maybe you ought to shut your fool mouth, Rollins replied, his tone one of forced cheer. He looked scared, but he drew his gun and kept the barrel down, close to his side, and held his mostly useless flashlight in his other hand. I'll cover you. I nodded once at him, turned, and plunged into the darkness, Rollins at my back. Screams erupted around us, sometimes accompanied by the sight of stumbling, terrified people. Rollins nudged them toward the walls, barked at them in a tone of pure paternal authority to stay near them, to move carefully for the exits. The gloom began to press in closer to me, 
and it became an effort of will to hold up the light in my amulet against it. A few steps more, and the air grew even colder. Walking forward became an effort, like wading through waist-deep water. I had to lean against it, and I heard a grunt of effort come out of my mouth. What's wrong? Rollins asked, his voice tight. We passed under one of the hotel's emergency light fixtures, its floodlights only dim orange rings in the murk, until my amulet's light burned the shadows away. Dark magic, I growled through clenched teeth. A kind of ward, trying to keep me from moving ahead. He huffed out a breath and muttered, Christ, magic, that isn't real. I stopped and gave him a steady look over my shoulder. Are you with me or not? He swallowed, staring up at the dim circles of light that were all he could see of another set of emergency lights. Crap, he muttered, wiping a sudden beating of sweat from his brow despite the cold air. You need me to push you or something? I let out a bark of tense laughter and forced my power harder against the gloomy ward, hacking at it with the machete of my will until I began to chop a path through the dark working, picking up speed. As I did, the sense of the spell became more clear to me. It's coming from up ahead of us, I said. The first conference room in this hall. They got it set up for movies, Rollins said. He seized a sobbing and terrified man in his middle years and deflected him bodily to the wall, snapping the same orders to him. God, it was packed in there. If the crowd panicked... He didn't finish the sentence, and he didn't need to. Chicago has seen more than a few deaths due to a sudden panic in a movie theater. I redoubled my efforts and broke into a heavy, labored jog that led us to a pair of doors leading into the first conference room. One of the doors was shut, and the other had been slammed open so hard that it had wrenched its way clear of one of the hinges. From inside the room came a sudden burst of terrified screams. Not the canned screams you get in horror movies. Real screams. Screams of such base, feral intensity that you could hardly tell they had come from a human throat. Screams you only really hear when there are terrible things happening. Rollins knew what they meant. He spat out a low curse, lifting his gun to a ready position, and we rushed forward to the room, side by side. The murk began to do more than simply drag at me when I hit the doorway. The air almost seemed to congeal into a kind of gelatin, and it suddenly became a fight to keep my legs moving forward. I snarled in sudden frustration and transformed it into more will that I sent coursing down through my silver pentacle amulet. The soft radiance emanating from the symbol became a white and cobalt floodlight, driving back the gloom, burning it from my path. It left the large room still coated in shadow, but it was no longer the total occlusion of the magical murk. It was a long room, about sixty feet, maybe half that wide. At the far end of the room was a very large projection screen. Chairs faced it in two columns. At one point in the aisle between them, a projector sat, running at such a frantic speed that smoke was rising from the reels of celluloid. The projected movie still appeared clearly on the screen, in a frantic, fast-motion blur of faces and images from a classic horror film from the early 80s. The soundtrack could only be heard as a single, long, piercing howl. There were still about twenty people in the room. Immediately beside the door was an old woman, curled on her side on the ground, sobbing in pain. 
Nearby, a wheelchair lay overturned, and a man with braces of some kind on his legs and hips had fallen into an awkward, painful-looking sprawl from which he could not arise. One of his arms was visibly broken, bone pushing its skin. Other people cringed against the walls and beneath chairs. When my wizard light flooded the place, they got up and started staggering away, still screaming in horror. Straight ahead of me were bodies and blood. I couldn't see much of them. Three people were down. There was a lot of blood around. A fourth person, a young woman, crawled toward the door, making frantic, mewling sounds. A man stood over her. He was nearly seven feet tall and so thick with slabs of muscle that he almost seemed deformed. Not pretty bodybuilder muscle either, but the thick, dull slabs that come from endless physical labor. He wore overalls, a blue shirt, and a hockey mask, and there was a long, curved sickle in his right hand. As I watched, he took a pair of long steps forward, seized the whimpering girl by her hair, and jerked her body into a backward bow. He raised the sickle in his right hand. Rawlins didn't bother to offer him a chance to surrender. He took a stance not ten feet away, aimed, and put three shots into the masked maniac's head. The man jerked, twisting a bit, and released the girl's hair abruptly, tossing her aside with a terrible, casual strength. She hit a row of chairs and let out a cry of pain. Then the maniac turned toward Rawlins, and even though the mask hid his features, the tilt of his head and the tension of his posture showed that he was furious. He went toward Rawlins. The cop shot him four more times, flashes of bright white burning the image of the maniac and the room onto my eyes. He brought the sickle down on Rawlins. The cop managed to catch the force of it upon his long flashlight. Sparks flew from the steel case, but the light held. The maniac twisted the sickle so that the tip plowed a furrow across Rollins's forearm. The cop snarled. The flashlight spun to the ground. The maniac raised the sickle again. I braced myself, raised my staff and my will, and cried, Fozari! Unseen power lashed from my staff, pure kinetic energy that ripped through the air and hit the maniac like a wrecking ball. The blow drove him back down the aisle through the air. He hit the projector on its stand. It shattered. He went through it without slowing down. He kept going, the flight of his passage tearing through the large projection screen, and hit the back wall with a thunderous impact. I sagged in sudden exhaustion. The effort of the spell, an enormous drain on me, and had to plant my staff on the ground to keep from falling over. My headache flared up with a vengeance, and the light of my amulet and staff both faded. There were a few more screams, the quick, light sound of frightened feet, and I whirled. I saw someone flee the room from the corner of my eye, but I didn't get much of a look at them. A second later, the room returned to normal. The lights back, the broken projector still spinning one reel at reduced speed, a loose tongue of film slap-slap-slapping the broken casing. Rawlins advanced, gun still out, his eyes very wide, down to the far end of the room. He went past the screen and looked behind it, gun in firing position. He looked around for a second, then back at me, his expression baffled. He's not here, Rawlins said. Did you see him go that way? I 
I just didn't have enough left in me to speak right at that moment. I shook my head. There's a dent in the wall, he reported, covered in, I don't know what, some kind of slime. He's gone, I grunted. Then I started forward toward the downed people. Two of them were young men, the third a young woman. Help me. Rollins holstered his weapon and did. One of the young men was dead. There was a crescent-shaped cut in his thigh that had opened an artery. Another lay mercifully unconscious, a bruise on his head, several hideous inches of bloody innards protruding from a slash across his belly. I was afraid that if we moved him, his guts might come popping out. The girl was alive, but the sickle's tip had drawn a pair of long lines down her back, along the spine, and the cuts had been vicious and deep. Bits of bone showed, and she lay on her belly, her eyes open and blinking, but utterly unfocused, either unwilling or unable to move. We did what we could for them, which wasn't much more than jerking the tablecloths off the water tables in the corner and improvising soft pads out of them to apply to open wounds. The second girl lay on her side nearby, sobbing hysterically. I checked on the old woman, who had just had the wind knocked out of her. I hauled the guy who had fallen from his wheelchair into a slightly more comfortable position, and he nodded thanks to me. See to the other victim, Rollins said. He held the pad against the boy's open abdomen, putting gentle pressure on it as he jerked out his radio. It squealed with feedback and static when he used it, but he managed to get emergency help headed our way. I went to the sobbing girl, a tiny little brunette wearing much the same clothes as Molly had been. She had been bruised up pretty well, and from the way she lay on the floor, she could evidently not move without feeling agony. I went to her and felt over her left shoulder gently. Be still, I told her quietly. It's your collarbone, I think. I know it hurts like hell, but you're going to be all right. It hurts, it hurts, 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 she panted. I found her hand with mine and squeezed tight. She returned it with a desperate pressure. You'll be all right, I told her. Don't leave me, she whimpered. Her hand was all but crushing mine. Don't leave. It's all right, I said. I'm right here. What the hell is this, Rollins said, panting. He looked around him, at the corpse, at the movie screen, at the dent in the wall beyond. That was the Reaper, the freaking Reaper from the suburban slasher films. What kind of psycho dresses up as the Reaper and starts... His face twisted in sudden nausea. What the hell is this? Rollins, I said, in a sharp voice to get his attention. His frightened eyes darted to me. Call Murphy, I told him. He stared at me blankly for a second, then said, My captain is the one to make the call on that one. He'll decide. Up to you, I said. But Murphy and her boys might actually be able to do something with this. Your captain can't. I nodded at the corpse. And we aren't playing for pennies here. Rollins looked at me, then at the dead boy. Then he nodded once and picked up his radio again. Hurts, the girl whimpered, breathless with pain. Hurts, hurts, hurts. I held her hand. I patted it awkwardly with my gloved left hand while we heard sirens approach. My God, Rollins said again. He shook his head. My God, Dresden, what happened here? I stared at the enormous rip in the movie screen and at the reaper-shaped dent in the wooden panels of the wall behind it. 
clear gelatin, the physical form of ectoplasm, the matter of the spirit world, gleamed there against the broken wood. In minutes it would evaporate and there would be nothing left behind. My God, Rollins whispered again, his voice still stunned. What happened here? Yeah. Good question. Chapter 13 The authorities arrived and replaced crisis with aftermath. The EMTs rushed the more badly injured girl and the eviscerated young man to an emergency room, while police officers who arrived on the scene did what they could to take care of the other injured attendees until more medical teams could show up. I stayed with the injured girl, holding her hand. One of the EMTs had examined her briefly, saw that though in considerable pain she was not in immediate danger, and ordered me to stay with her and keep anyone from moving her until the next team could arrive. That suited me fine. The thought of standing up again was daunting. I sat with the girl as more police arrived. She had become quiet and listless as her fear faded and her body produced endorphins to dull the pain. I heard a gasp and the sudden sound of pounding feet. I looked up to see Molly slip by a patrolman and fling herself down beside the girl. Rosie, she cried, her face very pale. Oh, my God. Easy, easy, I told her, putting a hand against Molly's shoulder to prevent her from embracing the wounded girl. Don't jostle her. She's hurt, Molly protested. Why haven't they put her in an ambulance? She's not in immediate danger, I said. Two other people were. The ambulance took them first. She goes on the next one. What happened? Molly asked. I shook my head. I'm not sure yet. I didn't see much of it. They were attacked. The girl on the floor suddenly stirred and opened her eyes. Molly? She said. I'm here, Rosie, Molly said. She touched the injured girl's cheek. I'm right here. My God, the girl said. Tears welled from her eyes. He killed them. He, he killed them. Her breathing began to come faster, building toward panic. Shh, shh, Molly said, and stroked Rosie's hair back from her forehead as one might a frightened child. You're safe now. It's all right. The baby, Rosie said. She slid her hand from mine and laid it over her belly. Is the baby all right? Molly bit her lip and looked at me. She's pregnant, I asked. Three months, Molly confirmed. She just found out. The baby, Rosie said. Will the baby be all right? They're going to do everything possible to make sure that you're both all right, I said immediately. Try not to worry about it too much. Rosie closed her eyes, tears still streaming. All right. Rosie, Molly asked, can you tell me what happened? I'm not sure, she whispered. I was sitting with uh, Ken, Andrea. We'd already seen our favorite scene in the movie, and we decided to go. I was bending over to get my purse, and Drea was checking her makeup, and then the lights went out, and she started screaming. And then when I could see again, he was there. She shuddered. He was there. Who? Molly pressed. Rosie's eyes opened too wide, showing white all around. Her voice dropped to a whisper. The Reaper. Molly frowned. Like in the movie? 
someone in a costume? It couldn't be, Rosie said, her trembling growing more pronounced. It was him. It was really him. The next medical team arrived and headed right for us. Rosie seemed to be on the verge of another panic attack when she saw them and started thrashing around. Molly leaned in close, whispering to her and continually touching her head until the EMTs could get to work. I stepped back. They got Rosie loaded onto a stretcher. When they laid her arm down by her side, I could see several small, round marks, irregular bruises, and damaged capillaries just under the surface of the skin at the bend of her arm. Molly stared at me for a second, her eyes wide. Then she helped the EMTs throw a blanket over Rosie and her track marks. The EMTs counted to three and lifted the stretcher, flicked out the wheels underneath, and rolled her toward the doors. The girls stirred and thrashed weakly as they did this, letting out whimpering little cries. She's frightened, Molly told the EMTs. Let me ride with her, help keep her calm. The men traded a look, and then one of them nodded. Molly let out a breath of relief, nodded to them, and went to walk by the head of the stretcher, where Rosie could see her. Don't worry, said the other EMT. We'll be right back for you, sir. What, this? I asked and waved vaguely at my head. Nah, I didn't get hurt here. This is from earlier. I'm good. The man's expression was dubious. You sure? Yep. They took the girl out. I dragged myself to the wall and propped my back up against it. A minute later, a man in a tweed suit came in and walked directly to Rollins. He spoke to the officer for a moment, glancing over at me once as they talked, then turned and walked over to me. Of only average height, the man was in his late forties, thirty pounds overweight, balding, and had watery blue eyes. He nodded at me, grabbed a chair, and settled down into it, looking down at me. You're Dresden? Most days, I said. My name is Detective Sergeant Green. I'm with Homicide. Tough job, I said. Most days, he agreed. Now, Rollins back there tells me you were an eyewitness to what happened, is that correct? Mostly, I said. I only saw what happened at the very end in here. Uh-huh, he said. He blinked his watery eyes and absently removed a pen and a small notebook from his pocket. Behind him, Cops were surrounding the area where the victims had lain with a circle of chairs and stringing crime scene tape between them. Can you tell me what happened? The lights went out, I said. People panicked. We heard screams. Rollins went to help and I went with him. Why? he asked. What? Why? Green said, his tone mild. You're a civilian, Mr. Dresden. It's Rollins' job to help people in emergencies. Why didn't you just head for the door? It was an emergency, I said. I helped. You're a hero, Green said. Is that it? I shrugged. I was there. People needed help. I tried to. Sure, sure, Green said, blinking his eyes. So what were you doing to help? Holding the light, I said. Didn't Rollins have his own flashlight? Can't have too many flashlights, I replied. Sure, Green said, writing things. So you held the light for Rollins. What then? We heard screams in here. We came in. I saw the attacker over that girl they just took out. Can you describe him? Green asked. Almost seven feet tall, I said. Built like a battleship, maybe 300, 325. Hockey mask, sickle. Green nodded. What happened? He attacked the girl.
There were other people behind him, already down. He was about to cut her throat with the sickle. Rollins shot him. Shot at him? Green asked. Since we don't have a dead bad guy on the floor. Shot at him, I amended. I don't know if he hit him. The bad guy dropped the girl and swung that sickle at Rollins. Rollins blocked it with his flashlight. Then what? Then I hit the guy, I said. Hit him how? Green asked. I used magic. Blew him thirty feet down the aisle and through the projector and the movie screen. Green slapped his pen down onto the notebook and gave me a flat look. Hey, I said, you asked. Or maybe he turned to run, Green said. Knocked the projector over and jumped through the screen to get to the back of the room. If that makes you feel better, I said. He gave me another hard look and said, And then what? And then he was gone, I said. He ran out the door? Nope, I said. We were pretty much right next to the door. He went through the screen, hit the wall behind it, and poof, gone. I don't know how. Green wrote that down. Do you know where Nelson Lenhart is? I blinked. No, why would I? He apparently attacked someone else at this convention today and beat him savagely. You bailed him out of jail. Maybe you're friends with him. Not really, I said. Seems a little odd, then, that you dropped $2,000 to bail out this guy you're not friends with. Yeah. Why'd you do it? I got annoyed. I had personal reasons. Which are? Personal, I said. Green regarded me with his watery blue eyes, silent for a long minute. Then he said, patiently and politely, I'm not sure I understand all of this. I'd appreciate it if you could help me out. Could you tell me again what happened, starting with when the lights went out? I sighed. We started over. Four more times. Green was never so much as impolite to me and his mild voice and watery eyes made him seem more like an apologetic clerk than a detective. But I had a gut instinct that there was a steely and dangerous man underneath the tweed camouflage, and that he had me pegged as an accomplice, or at least as someone who knew more than he was saying. Which, I suppose, was true. But going on about black magic and ectoplasm and boogeymen that disappeared at will wasn't going to make him like me any better. That was par for the course when it came to cops. Some of them, guys like Rollins, had run into something nasty at some point in their careers. They never talked much about it with anyone. Other cops tend to worry about it when one of their partners starts talking about seeing monsters. And all kinds of well-intentioned counseling and psychological evaluations were sure to follow. So, if a cop found himself face-to-face -face with a vampire or a ghoul, and survived it, its only existence tended to be in the landscape of memory. Time has a way of wearing the sharpest edges away from that kind of thing, and it's easy to avoid thinking about terrifying monsters, and even more terrifying implications, and get back to the daily routine. If enough time went by, a lot of cops could even convince themselves that what happened had been exaggerated in their heads, bad memories amplified by darkness and fear and that since everyone around them knew monsters didn't exist, they must therefore have seen something normal, something explainable. But when the heat was on, those same cops changed. Somewhere deep down, they know that it's for real. And when something supernatural went down again, they were willing, 
at least for the duration, to forget about anything but doing whatever they could to survive it and protect lives, even if in retrospect it seemed insane. Rollins would poke fun at me for pretending to be a wizard when there was a fan convention in progress, but when everything had hit the proverbial fan, he'd been willing to work with me. Then there was the other kind of cop, guys like Green, who hadn't ever seen anything remotely supernatural, who went home to their house and 2.3 kids and dog and mowed their lawn on Saturdays, who watched Nova and the Science Channel and subscribed to National Geographic and keep every issue stored neatly and in order in the basement. Guys like that were dead certain that everything was logical, everything was explainable, and that nothing existed outside the purview of reason and logic. Guys like that also tend to make pretty good detectives. Green was a guy like that. All right, Mr. Dresden, Green said. I'm still kind of unclear on a few points. Now, when the lights went out, what did you do? I rubbed at my eyes. My head ached. I wanted to sleep. I already told you this five times. I know, I know, Green said, and offered me a small smile. But sometimes repeating things can jiggle forgotten little details loose. So, if you don't mind, can you tell me about when it went dark? I closed my eyes and fought a sudden and overwhelming temptation to levitate Green to the ceiling and leave him there for a while. Someone touched my shoulder and I opened my eyes to find Murphy standing over me, offering me a white styrofoam cup. Evening, Harry. Oh, thank God, I muttered and took the cup. Coffee. I sipped some. Hot and sweet, I groaned in pleasure. Angel of mercy, Murph. That's me, she agreed. She was wearing jeans, a t-shirt, and a very light cotton blazer. She had circles under her eyes, and her blonde hair was messy. Someone must have gotten her out of bed for this one. Detective Green, she said. Lieutenant, Green replied, all courtesy on the surface. I didn't realize I'd called special investigations for help. Maybe someone bumped the speed dial on my phone. He reached into a pocket and took out a cell. He regarded it gravely for a moment and then said, Oh, wait, my mistake. You aren't on my speed dial. I must have slipped into some kind of fugue state when I wasn't looking. Don't worry, Sergeant, Murphy said, smiling sweetly. If I find out who done it, I'll tell you so you can get the caller. Green shook his head. This is messy enough already, he said. Some clown in a horror movie costume cuts a bunch of horror fans to ribbons. The press is going to make piranhas look like goldfish. Yep, Murphy said. Seems to me you should take all the help you can get. Don't want to screw it up in front of all those cameras. He gave her another flat look and then shook his head. You aren't exactly famous for your friendly spirit of cooperation with your fellow officers, Lieutenant. I get the job done. Murphy said easily. I can help you. Or I can see to it that the press knows that you're refusing assistance in finding a murderer because of departmental rivalry. Your call. Green stared at her for another long minute, then said, Does calling someone an overbearing, egotistical bitch constitute sexual harassment? Murphy's smile grew sunnier. Come to the gym sometime and we'll discuss it. Green grunted and rose, stuffing his pad and pen into his pocket. Dresden, don't leave town. I might need to speak to you again. 
Won't that be nice? I mumbled and sipped more coffee. Green handed Murphy a card. My cell number's on it, in case you actually do want to cooperate. Murphy traded him for one of hers. Ditto. Green shook his head, gave her a barely polite nod, and walked off to speak to the officers near the taped-off section of floor. I think he likes you, I told Murphy. Murphy snorted. He said you're running in a circle, huh? For an hour. I tried not to sound too disgusted. It's annoying, she said, but it really does work. Green's probably the best homicide detective in the state. If he had a personality, he'd have made captain by now. I don't think he's going to be much help on this one. Murphy nodded and sat down in the chair Green had vacated. So, you want to give me the rundown here? I haven't even finished my coffee, I complained. But I told her, starting with bailing Nelson out of jail and skipping over the details of the visit to Michael's house. I told her about the attack and how Rollins and I had presumably cut it short. She exhaled slowly. So this thing must have been from the spirit world, right? If it got shot full of bullets, didn't die, then dissolved into goo? That's a reasonable conclusion, I said. But I didn't exactly have time to make a thorough analysis. It could have been anything. Any chance you killed it? I didn't hit it all that hard. Must have had some kind of self-destruct. Damn it, Murphy said, missing the reference. No one loves the classics anymore. Will it come back? Your guess is as good as mine, I said. That's not good enough. I sighed and nodded. I'll see what I can figure out. How's Rollins? Hospital, she reported. He'll need a bunch of stitches for that cut he took. I grunted and rose. It was an effort, and I wobbled a little, but as soon as I got my balance, I walked over to the remains of the projector on its stand. I bent down and picked up a large, round tin, the one the movie reel had come in. I flipped it over and read the label. Huh, I said. Murphy came over and frowned at the tin. Suburban Slasher 2, I nodded. This means something. Other than the death of classic cinema? Movie fascist, I said. The guy that jumped them looked like the Reaper. Murphy gave me a blank look. The Reaper, I told her. Come on, don't tell me you haven't ever seen the Reaper. The killer from the suburban slasher films. He can't be slain, brings death to the wicked, which includes anyone who is having sex or drinking, apparently. If that's not classic cinema, I don't know what is. I guess I missed that one, Murphy said. There have been eleven films featuring the Reaper so far, I replied. I guess I missed those eleven, Murphy amended. You think this was someone trying to look like the Reaper character? Someone? I murmured with exaggerated menace. Or something. She gave me a level look. How long have you been waiting to use that one? Years, I said. The opportunity doesn't come up as often as you'd think. Murphy smiled, but it was forced. And we both knew it. The jokes didn't change the facts. Something had killed one young man only a few feet from where we sat, and the lives of at least two of the wounded hung on the skills of the doctors attending them. Murph, I said, there's a theater right down the street, run by a guy named Clark Pell. Could you find out what movie was showing there this afternoon? Murphy flipped to an earlier page of her notebook and said, I already did, something called Hammer Hands. Oldie but a goodie, I said. 
Ruffians push this farmer out onto train tracks, and the train cuts his hands off at the wrist. They leave him for dead, but he survives, insane, straps sledgehammer heads to the stumps, and hunts them down one at a time. And Clark Pell was the victim beaten here earlier today, Murphy said. Badly beaten with some kind of blunt instrument. Maybe it's a coincidence, I said. She frowned. Can someone do that? Bring movie monsters to life? Sort of looks that way, I said. How do we stop them, she asked. I dragged the con schedule out of my pocket and paged through it. The real question is, how do we stop them before tomorrow night? What's tomorrow night? Movie fest, I said, and held up the film schedule. Half a dozen films showing here, another half a dozen in Pell's Theater, and most of their monsters are nearly as friendly as Hammer Hand and the Reaper. God almighty, Murphy breathed. Any chance this could be regular folks playing dress-up? I doubt it, but it's possible. She nodded. We'll let Green cover that angle, then. Consider yourself to be on the clock for the department, Harry. What's our next move? We'll talk to the surviving victims, I said. And I try to figure out how many ways there are for someone to do something this crazy. She nodded and then frowned at me. First you get some sleep. You look like hell. Thanks, I said. Feel like I'm about to fall down. She nodded. I'll see if I can talk to Pell, if he's even awake. I doubt we'll get to the others before morning, assuming they survive. Right, I said. I'll need to get back here to do some snooping tomorrow. With any luck, we can track down our bad guy before something else jumps off the movie screen. Murphy nodded and rose. She offered me a hand. I took it, and she hauled me up. Murphy is a lot stronger than she looks. Give me a ride home, I asked. She already had her keys in her hand. Do I look like your driver? Thanks, Murph. We headed for the door. Usually I have to shorten my steps to match Murphy's, but tonight I was so tired that she was waiting for me. Harry, she said. What if we can't find out who was doing it in time? We'll find them, I said. But if we don't, then we fight monsters. Murphy took a deep breath and nodded as we stepped out into the summer night. Damn right we do. Chapter 14 Murphy drove me home and parked in the gravel lot next to the century-old converted boarding house. She killed the engine in the car, and it made those clicking noises they do. We sat there with the windows rolled down for a second. A cool breeze coming off the lake whispered through the car, soothing after the unrelenting heat of the day. Murphy checked her rearview mirror and then scanned the street. Who were you watching for? What? I said. What do you mean? You rubberneck so much on the way here, I'm surprised your shoulders aren't bruising your ears. I grimaced. Oh, that. Someone was tailing me tonight. And you're just now telling me about it? I shrugged. No sense worrying you over nothing. Whoever he is, he's not there now. I described the shadowy man and his car. Same one who ran you off the road, do you think? She asked. Something tells me no, I said. He wasn't making any effort to avoid being spotted. For all I know, he could just be a P.I. gathering information on me for the lawsuit. Christ, Murphy said. Isn't that thing over with? I grimaced. For a talk show host, Larry Fowler can really hold a grudge. He keeps doing one thing after another. 
Maybe you shouldn't have burned down his studio and shot up his car then. That wasn't my fault. That's for a court to decide, Murphy said in a pious tone. You got an attorney? I helped a guy find his daughter's lost dog five or six years ago. He's an attorney. He's given me a hand with the legal process, enough so it hasn't actually bankrupted me. But it just keeps going and going. Neither of us got out of the car. I closed my eyes and listened to the summer night. Music played somewhere. I could hear the occasional racing engine. Harry? Murph asked after a while. Are you all right? Hungry. A little tired. You look like you're hurting, she said. Maybe a little achy, I said. Not that kind of hurt. I opened my eyes and looked at her and then away. Oh, that. That, she agreed. You look like you're bleeding somehow. I'll get over it, I told her. Is this about last Halloween? I shrugged a shoulder. She was quiet for a moment, then she said, There was a lot of confusion in the blackout and right after. But they found a corpse in the field museum that had been savaged by an animal. Lab guessed it was a large dog. They found three different blood types on the floor, too. Did they? I asked. And at Kent College. They found eight dead bodies there. Six of them had no discernible means of death. One had its head half severed by a surgically sharp blade. The other had taken a forty-four round to the back of the head. I nodded. She stared at me for a while, frowning and waiting for me to continue. Then she said in a quiet, certain voice, You killed them. My memory played some bad clips in my head. My stomach twisted. I didn't do the headless guy. Her cool blue eyes stayed steady, and she nodded. You killed them. It's eating at you. It shouldn't have killed a lot of things. True, Murphy said. But they weren't fairies or vampires or monsters this time. They were people. And you weren't in the heat of battle when they died. You made the choice cold. I couldn't lift my eyes for some reason, but I nodded and whispered, More or less. She waited for me to say more, but I didn't. Harry, she said, you're tearing yourself up over it. You've got to talk to someone. It doesn't have to be me or here, but you've got to do it. There's no shame in feeling bad about killing someone, not for any reason. I let out a short little laugh. It tasted bitter. You're the last person I'd expect to tell me not to feel bad about committing murder. She shifted uncomfortably. Sort of surprised myself, she said. But, damn it, Harry. You remember when I shot Agent Denton? Yeah. Took me some time to deal with it, too. I mean, I know he'd lost it, and he was going to kill you if I didn't do it, but it made me feel... She squinted out at the Chicago night. Stained to take a life, she swallowed. And those poor people the vampires had controlled at the shelter... That was even worse. All of those people were trying to kill you, Murph. You had to do it. You didn't have an option. You thought about it. You knew that when you pulled the trigger. Do you think you had an option? She asked. I shrugged and said, Maybe, maybe not. I swallowed. The point is that I never bothered to consider it. Never hesitated. I just wanted them dead. 
She was quiet for a long time. What if the council is right about me? I asked Murphy quietly. What if I grow into some kind of monster? One that takes life without consideration for anything but his own will. Who cares more about end than means? More about might than right? What if this is the first step? Do you think it is? Murphy asked. I don't. Because if you think so, Harry, then it probably is. And if you decide that it isn't, it probably isn't. The power of positive thinking, I asked. No. Free will, she said. You can't change what has already happened, but you choose what to do next. Which means that you can only cross over to the dark side if you choose to do it. What makes you think that I won't, I asked. Murphy snorted and reached over to touch my chin lightly with the fingers of one hand. Because I'm not an idiot, unlike some other people in this car. I reached up and gripped her fingers with my right hand, squeezing gently. Her hand was steady and warm. Careful, that was almost a compliment. You're a decent man, Murphy said, lowering her hand without removing it from my fingers. Painfully oblivious sometimes but you've got a good heart. It's why you're so hard on yourself. You're tired, hungry, and hurting, and you saw the bad guys do something you couldn't stop. Your morale is low. That's all. Her words were simple, frank, and direct. There was no sense of false comfort to her tone, not a trace of indulgent pity. I've known Murphy for a while. I knew that she meant every single word. Knowing that I had her support... Even in the face of violation of the laws she worked to preserve was a sudden and vast comfort. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Murphy is good people. Maybe you're right, I said. Hell's bells, I've got to stop feeling sorry for myself and get to work. Start with food and rest, she said. If you don't hear from me, assume I'll pick you up in the morning. Right, I said. We sat there holding hands for a minute. Karen, I asked. She looked up at me. Her eyes looked very large, very blue. I couldn't stare at them too long. Have you ever thought about, you know, us? Sometimes, she said. Me too, I said. But the timing always seems to be off somehow. She smiled a little. I noticed. Do you think it'll ever be right? She squeezed my hand gently, and then withdrew hers from mine. I don't know. Maybe sometime. She frowned at her hand and then said, It would change a lot of things. It would, I said. You're my friend, Harry, Murphy said. No matter what happens. Sometimes, in the past, I haven't really done right by you. Like when you handcuffed me in my office? I said, right. And when you chipped one of my teeth arresting me? Murphy blinked. I chipped a tooth? And went, yes, all right, she said. She gave me a mild glare, her cheeks pink. The point is that I should have seen that you were one of the good guys a lot sooner than I did. And I blinked at her ingenuously and waited for her to say it. And I'm sorry, she growled. Jerk. That had cost her something. Murphy has more pride than is good for her, 
And yes, I am aware of the proverb about glass houses and stones. So I didn't give her any more of a hard time than I already had. Now don't go all romantic on me now, Murph. She smiled a little and rolled her eyes. If we ever did get together, I'd kill you inside a week. Now go get some rest. You're useless to me like this. I nodded and swung out of the car. In the morning, then. Around eight, she said, and pulled out and back onto the street. She called to me. Be careful! I looked after the car and sighed. My feelings about Murphy were still in a hopelessly complicated tangle. Maybe I should have said something to her sooner, shared my feelings with her sooner, acted more swiftly, taken the initiative. Be careful, she said. Why did I feel like I'd been too careful already?